Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, uh, the dear, the lovely, the oh-so-gray, Jason Johnston Yellen. How are you, Jason? What's what's happening? What's going on in Jason's life? That's a good question. Hmm. <laughs> well, we're getting ready for back to school. Yeah. Goodness knows what that's going to look like. It's going to look uh, like tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow, going back to university after multiple spine surgeries and COVID time at home. I just, yeah, it's all, it's all, it's crazy, crazy. But you've actually segged beautifully into what I was curious about with you. Oh, okay. Which, which is from a whiskey perspective. Mm-hmm. You, over the last few weeks, have been dipping your toe back into what we call market visits. Yes, yes I have. And I've been curious what that has looked like for you, because you, like everybody, came off the road for the better part of 15 months, Mm -hmm. 16 months, I'm not exactly sure the number, but right, right, long-ass time, as Mm -hmm. they say in the medical journals. Yep. And so now that you're back out there, have have things changed? Are shelves looking different? Are there new mm. expectations on the ground? That's a really good question because I because it's a good question because the answer changes depending on what aspect you're talking about. And I thought it might right. So one thing that's changed is your ability to see anybody. You can see people, but not everybody is ready to be seeing people. Uh, though and more, are you talking yeah. store owner, spirits buyer, distributor, yeah, good, sales reps? Good question. Uh, second good question. I should have been more Thank clear. You. I'm talking about spirits buyers at shops. Uh, you know, the people responsible for stocking the back bar and figuring out their cocktail programs and and things like that. Mm. Right. So the trips that I've taken, we've been able to set up appointments. Everybody's been wanting to see us. We've had normal unmasked meetings, you know, so long as we, we understand that both, you know, both parties, us and them, are vaccinated. Um, however, I've heard in other places, like in Chicago, there's still major players who aren't really seeing anybody. There's mm. uh, a shop that that I think I've taken you to before, Independent Spirits. The owner there, he he's not tasting with you. You drop off the samples, and then and then he'll taste and write. And 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 I would not mm-hmm. be surprised if I'll find more of that. Right. Um, so, so there is that. So you, you've got a bit of a mix there. The shelves are stocked pretty well, mm-hmm. I would say. Though if you look closely, you know, there's, there's the double-facing slots. So for those, for those that don't know this term, right, when, when you peruse your, your liquor shelves at your local retail shop... And you look, and there's a bottle of Glenmorangie, and then a bottle of Glenmurray, and then a bottle of this Glen and that Glen. 
but if you really pay attention, you may see it's actually two Glenmore and G10 year olds side by side taking up two spots. And then mm-hmm. the Glen Murray, whatever bottling, taking up two spots and so on. So the shelves will look packed, but it's not as packed as you think they are. And and that does change from shop to shop, but but I'm seeing that sure. a bit more than I had pre-COVID. We talked about it a lot on the podcast, both this one and Extra Extra, but we weren't really out there speaking to store owners, spirits, buyers, what have you. Are there any residual effects from the tariffs that you're seeing or hearing? Are you noticing some pricing difference on shelves? Are you being asked about any pricing differences? We've not been asked about any pricing differences. We have had conversations about the tariff, right? When when you're talking with someone, they say, oh, you know, thank God the tariffs are away. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully we'll see <laughs> mm-hmm. some prices come down, you know, th- things like that. It gives us the opportunity to, to you know, tell them what Kill Home and an Impex did. And, and Port Eskeg also lowered, you know, some of their pricing to, to, to ensure pricing isn't goosed by the by the tariffs. But generally speaking, that, that isn't a conversation anymore. People have sort of moved on. And I and I wondered about that, right? When you're, you know, we had you know multiple crises happening at the same time. But the day the magic wand gets waved and tariffs go away, mm. you stop worrying about it. As you and I have discussed previously, does there continue to be fallout from it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But if you're just on the the front lines of the everyday spirits buying, you're on to the next thing, right? You are now dealing with potential new lockdowns and if you're in other countries you very well could be back locked down again you know we keep seeing South Africa on again off again when it comes to liquor stores being opened and closed and bars being opened and closed so you know we just spoke with our our friends at Backwoods Lee and Bree and now what things are looking like in Melbourne and Sydney and mm. you know just when they thought they were out the woods they're back in it again so so all of that is just to say the tariffs they're they're not on paper anymore they really have quote unquote gone away yes but pricing from product that came in during the tariffs is still inflated oh it so it, it is right because the importers purchased the liquid, brought in the liquid at a certain price with that 25% tariff applied, right? The distributors purchased from the importer with that 25% tariff applied and, and, and all down the chain. And and so prices on store shelves, if that product was affected by the tariffs, those prices are going to reflect that because it's only just happened, <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I I was just kind of curious how those conversations were going. Obviously, today's chat with with Scott Harris, and we will speak with Becky Harris, uh, Catalton Creek Distilling Company, but part of that is that revisiting Mm. what did things look like for you. For me, it's not even saying what did it look like for you during COVID or coronavirus or the pandemic, for me, it's now, 
what did things look like for you during the 2020 portion of the yeah. pandemic and the early 2021 portion um, as we're now, you know, staring Delta and Lambda and Delta Plus and yeah. goodness knows yep. what else is coming. And, and what's so interesting about your conversation with Scott, the way it starts, and our listeners, of course, will hear this, is there's, there's a hint of hope. In, in, in his words and in the tone of his voice because restrictions were coming, coming down and, you know, things were opening up. And, you know, so you, you can, that's a really good marker to let people know when you recorded that conversation. And just in our conversation now, when you had asked, what's it like visiting shops and bars? All of the information I gave you happened before Delta became a thing where states are putting certain measures into place, where New York City has um, instituted a, you know, don't come into the restaurant if you're not vaccinated. Don't come to my gym if you're not vaccinated, mm -hmm. right? The last mm -hmm. time I mm -hmm. was on, this, on the street was before that, right? So you could ask me two weeks from now and I... I think I'll have a different answer. And then you'll ask me two weeks after that, and my answer will change a little bit again. Well, right, and it's, it's right back to the answer I started to give you when you'd said, how, how are things in the world of Jason? Well, they're very uncertain, right? Yeah. We thought early July things were taking a particular form, early June they were taking a, a particular form, here we are in early August, and they're taking a different form. It continues to be a, a, a period in flux, yeah. which, yeah. gosh, I don't think I could have polished that turd any better than that <laughs> statement. Uh, a period in flux. I should get a government job with bullshit like that coming that's, out of my mouth. That's really good. Uh, that's, some, that's some excellent jargonese. Well done. It is. It is. I always think of, um, oh, gosh, uh, about George Carlin. Yeah, George Carlin had a piece, and I think he's he's had multiple pieces, but he had a piece that was, as you add more words to describe a condition or a situation, mm -hmm. you say less, and you lessen the impact of it. And the the example that I always remember him giving mm -hmm. is shell shock, right? Shell shock mm -hmm. is serious that gets your attention yep and when you then you go through various iterations but ultimately you get to post-traumatic stress, stress disorder, disorder. Yeah. right it remains very serious and very significant yeah but now it's now it's ptsd yeah you can throw an acronym at it and you've said yeah even yeah. a lot less <laughs> yeah and you're like us oh, just that thing's ptsd but no no, no. it's just ptsd this person's been shell-shocked right. oh well hold on a second yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I feel like that's partly as human beings, it's how we survive, mm -hmm. right? It's how we get through a lot of this stuff. But the uncertainty is such. And I was, I really was just curious for you being back out, seeing folk, for me going back out, you know, obviously earlier in the summer, I had my conversation with Bill Thomas. Mm -hmm. You and I had our conversation in, in person with Bruce Russell. Yeah. Here's my visit with Scott and Becky. Um, we do have uh, another in-person uh, coming up uh, in a couple of episodes. Mm -hmm. But but right now, I'm kind of looking around wondering, will I continue with the in-person stuff? 
what's what's that going to look like? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't blame you if you wanted to, to hold back a little bit until cases go back down. And, you right. know, everybody's got to feel their own level of safety, right? And to fault you for saying, you know what, I'm going to hold off on the in-person thing and, until I feel a bit more comfortable, fine. If you said, I'm okay with this, I got the mask, I'm vaccinated, I've got my hand lotion, good to go, fine. Can't, couldn't fault you either way. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, anyway, before we, I, the, the goal wasn't to go down this path. It was mostly just to set up that we continue to live in a period of flux and uh, and we're still adjusting. Here's a quick question for you. Oh, okay, go ahead. You're going to ask me a question? Well, You're going to ask me a question. I, I, I was, I was going to continue on this, the... You know, the spirit of the conversation of this, of, of being in flux, and, uh-huh. and discuss uh, a whiskey that I've been reaching for as of late. But, but I can hold off. So I was just about to ask you, unprompted, unscripted, we have no production meeting notes. <laughs> I was going to ask you, what's the best thing you've drunk in the last two weeks? Holy crap. <laughs> Holy crap. And if you wanted to turn two weeks into four weeks, that would be perfectly fine as well. But just, I'm just curious what what recently has got your attention. And well, we'll just do this quick and then we'll we'll jump into the Scott interview. This isn't going to take over the podcast. I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been two things. One, I don't think will surprise you. And the other one may or may not surprise you. But I think the combination of the two will surprise you. So the best thing that I've drunk in the past two weeks may be the best thing that I've drunk this year. It's it's definitely neck and neck with another. This is the 13-year-old Kilhoman single cask for the Whiskey Exchange (laughs) that you got me. You're welcome. (laughs) I'm just absolutely floored by it. I'm just... You know, Kilhoman has a very specific flavor profile that lives in this world of of citrus and floral, a bit of white chocolate going on, you know, think things like that. And occasionally, very occasionally, I get a bit of fruit going on. And if the and if there is fruit, it's gonna be some orchard fruit, maybe pears, maybe some some apples. This is a tropical fruit bomb to the to the levels of of late teens Beaumors. Like it, mm-hmm. it's just juicy and guava and papaya and star fruit and oh my gosh, uh, there's it's not a fruit but roasted fennel going on there, which gives you this kind of anisey kind of thing coming through, or a licoricey kind of thing going through. And then this lavender backbone. The lavender is like intertwined with the peat. And it is just, I think it's the best Kilhoman I've ever had. And it's, <laughs> and it is, um, it is potentially the best whiskey I've had this year. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, you know, I've raved to Jess about it. Sweet Scott, Elijah, you. Uh, I've been thoroughly enjoying it. It's it's a little cracker. It is, and we've we've got three days to buy more of it before this podcast goes out. <laughs> but it's it's one of these things where you you know I 
I'm with the importer of Kilhoman. I've tasted tons of ex-bourbon barrels. I know what to expect. Excellent bourbon cask whiskey that's always going to deliver, and it's going to fit within a range of flavors. And this one, it just seems as if Kilhoman broke the glass ceiling and reached a new level of flavors. It, 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 took, it took me beyond what I know as Kilhoman, but remained Kilhoman. That's, that, yeah. that was remarkable. That was absolutely remarkable. Yeah, it definitely remains Kilhoman. But, and yet older Kilhoman mm, that... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's doing something rather special. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's a good call. I like yep. that. Yep. And what about you? So, as soon as I asked you the question, I started looking around my desk and the floor <laughs> around my desk to get my own answer. And what's really become obvious for me is I haven't really been tasting new general release bottles in the last two weeks or four weeks. What I've been doing is tasting a ton of samples for the company. And and one of the things I've, again, been telling you about and Jess about and Elijah about is I feel like I've just rediscovered Dal Ewan. <laughs> and, and I have been <laughs> raving yeah, about Dal Ewan. S- such very special examples and, and different ages. But then it got me thinking, a bottle that you and I have talked about plenty on on previous podcasts, we did an undisclosed 28-year-old Speyside Mm -hmm. that was, what, $200 a bottle and was a great, it wasn't quite a slow burner, but it it was just a burner, right? Because it was in that kind of 200s and it didn't have a distillery name on it, but that may very well have come from a distillery that I've just been rediscovering at younger ages. Yeah, and do you, do you know? <laughs> and I don't have any of it. <laughs> I don't have any of it either. And I will Curses. tell you, I think that is the best cask of whiskey we've ever bottled. Hands I remember down. you saying that. Yep, I remember you yep. saying that. And neither of us have any of it. Nope. And now I'm rediscovering the distillery at younger ages. Yeah, I don't. So, so that's the one, as I kind of look over my desk, I've gone through a ton of great samples and we'll be saying more about what they turn into as the months go along. Yeah. But I, I will say we've got Dal Ewing coming out in ROW, rest of the world, UK and rest of the world, release number three. We've got Dal Ewing coming out to the US retail as well. Um, and we've got a little bit more Dal Ewing up our sleeves as mm-hmm. well. It's... Mm-hmm. I'm I'm so I'm so happy and I'm so impressed with it as I as I keep revisiting yeah. it. So there's my answer. Can I tell you what my other whiskey was that I've been revisiting? Okay. Cause I did mention that. Did I just think that or did I mention that? That there'd be two and you'd be surprised of the combination of the two? Did I say that? Yes, aloud? you did. You I did. did. You did set aloud. this up. You did indeed. Yes. <sighs> Man. Uh <laughs> So in the summertime, I like to drink two things. Bourbon cask, matured Isla whiskey, and Glenmorangie. I think it's just a lovely, stone, fruity, summery whiskey. And I had purchased a bottle of cake, Glenmorangie cake, 
just a bit before we had our uh, conversation with Bill Lumsden. And I, rem- I remember opening it, pouring it, and not loving it at all. And, and then when we had our conversation with him, and he said, You've had, you had cake, right? And, uh, and, I, and, and you had said yes. I, I remember you had said that you had had it before. I had said yes, and I was fearful that he was going to say, and what did you think? Because I'd, I would have to just be honest. And I'm glad he didn't ask because I would have been honest, but revisiting it after it's oxidized a bit, oh, my gosh. My biggest complaint was that the, the texture wasn't there. And because the texture wasn't there, I wasn't able to get that connection between the palette and the finish. And uh, returning to it, it's it's telling a lovely story. It's a great little drinker, and those Tokai casks really shine there. Again, allowing Glenmorangie to remain Glenmorangie, but you know, but just taking that spirit in a new direction. And and so I think I like both whiskeys for very different reasons. Or I should say, I I should say I like both whiskeys for the same reason that they, they get into new flavor zones while remaining true to their spirit, but they're two very different whiskeys. That that's what I, I meant I to think say. that I think that fits with how we explore casts in this company. Yeah. Right? I, I think that hits our remit on the head. How far into the bottle were you for this oxidation to happen? Were you just through the neck or through the shoulders? Um, I was I was two drams in, so and I usually pour neck. about three quarters of an ounce. So not so a you're lot. saying once you get rid of the neck pour, it really improved. So, so tell us about the opening here uh, with your conversation with Scott Harris at uh, Catoctin Creek Distilling Company. It was just an honor to sit down with them and catch up. He's such, he's both a friend of the podcast. He's also a friend. A friend. And, yeah. and just getting to sit down with a friend in the office at Catoctin Creek, we got to talk about, you know, the COVID situation. Uh, we got to talk about Guar, their collaboration with Guar. We got to talk about the expansion plans that they've got, the things they're working on around that distillery and the good people that they've got working in their, their bricks and mortar. And then we got to go out to the, the warehouse as well. And that will be oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a little separate part of today's episode. So right now we're just going to jump into the, the chat that just Scott and I had in, in the back of Catalton Creek back in his office. Mm-hmm. And then we'll come back, and you and I are actually going to pour something. Looking forward to that. Good to see you, my friend. Yes, good to see you again. Last time we spoke, we were in COVID. You were battling for survival. Mm -hmm. You were getting direct shipping to consumers. You had hoped that that would hang around afterwards. Correct. We're sitting here July of 2021. America is slowly coming out of it. Parts of Virginia may be coming out faster than other parts of Virginia. I will say in Virginia's defense, we have 70%... Vaccine adoption rate too, Which so that's good, good to hear. That's a good milestone. Good to hear. So, how's it looking as as you're hopefully coming out of this? Um, 
I think it's looking bright, you know, so we're, we're glad for that. Um, with regard to the direct-to-consumer shipping, um, you know, as of right now, we still have that privilege. Um, the state has extended it beyond. So the governor's um, original emergency orders now have expired. Mm. So they have declared the emergency officially over in Virginia um, as far as all the measures and things that, that were in place, um, mask mandates and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, the 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 ability to ship direct to consumer has remained. So the state has, I think, as we thought, you know, decided that that's a really nice way to do it. And we can do that safely without imperiling, you know, underage drinkers and Mm -hmm. things like that. So for now we have that ability. It's not codified into legal status. Um, It's sort of a privilege that's granted by the ABC authority. Um, But, but we still can do it. So that's a good thing. Are consumers still looking for you online? Yeah. Is that demand still there? Well, what's interesting is it changed um, the business model a bit. So mm-hmm. it has become the main mechanism that we use to do new releases. So we no longer allow people or even encourage people to, to line up outside the door, mm-hmm. you know, with the line down the street. We now just throw it all into the online store and then they can, you know, pick it up at their leisure or they can have it directly shipped to their home. So that's really changed for us. Um, how we release special re- releases and things like that. Um, how about your your local crew? We know with the nation, we're obviously national, and we have our lottery only releases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, despite being online, how are your local supporters who could come down the distillery feeling about all of Virginia being involved in your releases now? That's a fair point. Um, there's more competition now, you know, from mm-hmm. the state. Um, but our local people are the most enthusiastic supporters. And so they're going to get on at eight o'clock sharp on a Monday morning and, and pick up those releases. So hopefully, you know, it hasn't detrimented them too much. And, and of course, for them, then they can just mark a pickup um, for the product and just come get it at their leisure. I would much rather do that than wait two hours in a line, you know, before some. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we joke within the nation. Jason's not standing in queues for whiskey. No, no, That's just no, not happening. No. <laughs> Speaking of special releases and a project that you somehow pulled off during COVID times, you did this collaboration with Guar. Yeah, the, the, the yeah. band Guar. Yeah. How did that come about? And how did you pull that off during COVID? They um they were bored. We were bored. So <laughs> <laughs> the um uh so Guar is a um a band based in Richmond, Virginia, right? So they oh I didn't know they were yeah, that yeah they come out of Richmond and um they approached us. They they've been fans. You know they have the Guar Bar in Richmond, so it's a Guar themed bar that they own and run. Right. And um. They they had approached us about doing a collaborative whiskey. They wanted, you know, they've got um, branded uh, skateboards and even a line of cannabis products. Like they've got all these different things that they sort of put their name on and they're kind of good at that. Um, and they have a very um, big following, you know, international following, in fact. Um, and so, you know, we were actually like, well, do we really want to do this? You know, and and then we, you know, looked at the band and and you know <laughs> realized what they really were and and thought this is going to be a lot of fun. You know, and so it was really kind of a neat neat opportunity to work with them. It's been fun. The band is great. They're super neat guys to get to know them. Um, and uh, and you realize the whole thing is is just a, a lot of fun. You know, like mm-hmm, we had a mm-hmm. couple. A couple of our investors were a little bit, oh, I don't know if this really fits the image with what we're trying to do and all that kind of stuff. And it's like anybody who understands Guar knows that it's all a big joke, right? It's just <laughs> not to be taken seriously, you know. 
So in that vein, you know, writing the press releases was great fun. You know, talking about hurling the barrels around the asteroids and then, you know, orbiting the moon and all this kind of stuff and made from the blood of the gods and things like that. It's just fantastic. Everything I read coming out of Catoughton Creek just looked like you were all having a ton of fun. Oh my God, so much fun. A ton of fun. Best press releases ever because usually a press release is so buttoned up, you know. We are excited to announce that we have this and this and it's really new opportunities that we've opened up this new thing and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yawn. So yeah, to be able to like use the words, you know, blood of the gods in in a release was just fantastic <laughs> it definitely speaks to joshua's sensibilities oh yeah joshua that's, i'm sure that's he, absolutely he probably was a fan sense. of the band i would think i would imagine so certainly seems the, like his thing yeah certainly the way it was dressed up is all joshua yeah so, so what was the liquid so it's interesting because the the liquid you know we we joke that you know in a release like this people are so excited for the label and the bottle toppers and all this kind of stuff that the label um you know, it, it could be it could be turpentine inside the bottle, like nobody would notice, right? But we mm-hmm. were like, no, that's not what we do. Like, we never put stuff out that we couldn't be proud of on its own. You know, Becky had been working on some R and D projects. Um, as I sit here, I'm looking at some of it on the shelf over there, um, and you know, she was doing experiments with different woods. Um, so she would take some of our regular roundstone rye that had been aged for you know two years in a Minnesota white oak barrel, right, mm-hmm. medium char, blah blah blah. And then she wanted to do some finishing experiments with other wood types. And so we had experimented with about 10 different types of wood. So things, you know, as varied as cypress, as um, sugar maple, cherry wood, and things like that. So she was adding two and three different types of wood to those and then sampling those individually, you know. So she had created different blends. So, you know, 10% of this wood and 20% of that wood, Hmm. different recipes, about 10 different styles. And we have been doing that for a couple of years and didn't really have a home for it, you know, and didn't really have it productized yet. And so when the Guar guys came along, we were like, well, maybe this is an opportunity to do that. And so we sent them basically those samples, um, five or six different samples. I can't remember exactly how many. And they sampled them blindly. And uh, then we, we just gave them code names like ODJ1, you know, ODS3, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. And... Um, and so then when they told us, they unanimously, they all picked the same one, which happened to be the one that was, um, uh, the it was white oak and then finished with sugar maple and cherry wood. Mm. And what was cool about that was it really played into this consistent story that we've been trying to sort of maintain, which is it was all Virginia. Those are all Virginia native woods, Virginia band, Virginia company for whiskey, all of that kind of fit nicely together. Like it was kismet. So the whiskey is really nice. And with those additional wood notes, you get something that is really, really quite different. In fact, I have a a bottle of it here, and we could pour some for you if you like. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'll have to hit pause. Should we do that now? Here, yeah, just hit, or just keep it rolling, I guess. (laughs) So tell me if you can taste uh, some of the special uh, wood treatment that we've done on that. Yeah, there's a there's there's clearly your rye profile is front and center. Yep. As you always say, there's a Catoctin DNA there. You mm-hmm. can tell that's Catoctin. Oh yeah. Oh, you could sit and drink that quite easily. Mm-hmm. The wood's there, but it's not overpowering. Right. You already leading the witness with a blend happening here. Mm-hmm. 
you can tell work has been put in on the profile by somebody who knows exactly what they're doing. It is one of the few whiskeys that we actually do sort of cross-blend across barrels. Normally what we have is a single-barrel whiskey. So when Becky did these, she had a sugar maple barrel, and she had a cherry wood barrel, and she had you know the regular white oak barrels. And so then she's adding spirit that has aged in that environment. It's not like you know we had a barrel and we threw a bunch of those chips into it and it all blended together. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So she was able to extract you know the sugar maple flavor into a whiskey and then separately extract the cherry wood flavor into a whiskey and then blend those together with whiskey that had been untouched by those woods as well. So there's mm-hmm. a blend of just white oak with the sugar maple with the with the cherry wood and and so that's an interesting process. It's such a nice sweetness and I always wonder how much I've been led. You hear sugar maple and mm, you think and oh there's think a good sugar, sweetness right. and the right. and then the cherry wood and oh yeah I can taste a bit of that. If I start saying things like <laughs> eggplant and asparagus what are you going what are you going to think? Yeah, I don't know but my pee just changed it. <laughs> it smells. <laughs> Now, that, that's really delicious. Are, these are available on the website? These are available on the website. So we did batch one. It sold out right away. Ah. And so this is batch two now on the website July 19th. So I don't oh, know fantastic. when this program will air. but uh, A little after July 19th. Yeah. We might be into early August okay, with so the schedule. Okay, so it'll probably still be available at that time. But okay. um, if not, um, batch three will be coming. This is, I think, something we're going to regularly keep producing. Mm. That's fantastic. And then for anyone who does get it on the website, you can only ship to them within Virginia. No. Um, on the website now, we can ship to about 40 states. Get out of town. Oh, that's great yeah, we have news. have a new retail partner um, on the website. And so they're basically doing the back end for us. And, oh, fantastic. And we can ship to most states in the U.S. So and I'm glad we're having this conversation. Yeah, that's excellent. So katoctoncreek.com slash shop. Brilliant. Yeah, please get out and support. Our yeah. listeners have been... You know, Joshua and I talk highly of Catalton Creek early and often. Oh, that's wonderful. The you fact, guys are great. You know, supporting with dollar bills is even it's, more important. That's what keeps the lights on, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's right. Just to, just to pivot back a little bit here, you, you talked about the direct-to-consumer within Virginia hadn't been codified. Mm-hmm. Do you... Do you think it might? Is there that groundswell that we've been talking about? Um, It is... As the Scots would say, touchy. Okay, I'm <laughs> um, with you. Yeah, it's um, if you you know there were those of us who would like to see it codified because then it's you know law and mm-hmm. it can't be yeah. changed. Yeah. Um, and um, but then you know we we all work for the ABC, you know, and they don't really want that to happen. And there's other interested parties in politics, you know, lobbies from other mm-hmm. industries, mm-hmm. beer, wine, restaurants, and things who have maybe interests that are not lined up with that. And so um, ABC, I think, is trying to balance all of those interests. Makes sense. And, uh, you know, there are some of us who would be like, just make it law and then it's final. But if you do that, it's like the nuclear option, and then you have all those lobbyists coming against you, and you might lose the ability to do it at all. Yes, So it's touchy. It's touchy. So we're kind of trying to keep the status quo alive. You know, the longer I think we continue doing what we're doing, the harder it is to say that doing that was wrong. And that was the last time we spoke with you was if if the deep concern here is that children will be getting drunk in the streets, that's not happening. What you're able to show now, right. you know, as opposed to just simply saying, we don't think children are right. going to get drunk in the streets. Right. You're now showing children are not getting drunk in the right. streets. Right. And that was always the argument that was used at the national level, at the state level by those parties. 
and now they have to come up with some new way, yeah. which the real reason is because they don't want to lose money in their pocket because yeah. we're getting money in our pocket. Yep. But that's not politically what they have to say. So. Yeah, and walking that fine line with a supporter like yeah. the ABC and then in other states yeah. with distributors, well, it is and, clearly complicated. And mind you, the ABC is a governmental agency, so they are extremely non-risk-taking, mm-hmm. right? Everything is very by the book and very much um, black and white. Mm-hmm. And, and so that just is a totally different environment from, you know, a buster, mover, shaker, entrepreneur, <laughs> risk taker, and those kinds of things. Yeah. I love the way that you had the hand motions yeah. to go with that. That was a full shoulder move yeah, you had. I think I threw something. <laughs> <laughs> you did look pained. I, I'm still sitting, s- sipping on this guar. Yeah. And, and Catoctin Creek is still so present in this. Yeah even with the other woods being allowed to tell mm-hmm. their story. So, yeah, kudos to Becky, kudos to you. There kudos you to Guar for you. this as well. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. They, they, I think they've been pleased with it. So as much as you've pulled off that collaboration with Guar during a pandemic, lockdown, shutdown, difficulties, insert word here, you've also been expanding. Yeah. And, and it was actually an, a nation member of ours saw you posting about breaking ground on some expansion and and said, oh, we'll, we'll have to get One Nation Under Whiskey on this and we mm-hmm. want to hear more about this. It's taken us a few months here, mm-hmm. but I'm finally here. Yep. Uh, I'm sitting at the distillery. Expansion. Yeah. Tell, tell all of our listeners. Scream it from the rooftops. It is, it is uh, exciting and frightening at the same time. I mean, really it is. I, I am absolutely petrified with fear and yet it is the next place that we have to go so um you know we uh being fully committed to the batch process um and uh as we as we mentioned back at the warehouse you know we we need bigger pot stills to make more more liquid and so um we have planned basically uh, a tripling of our capacity in this building here. So we're in a 6,000 square foot building, but 2,000 of that is tasting room. And then another mm-hmm. 2,000 of it is back here in the office. So we have about 2,000 square feet of actual production floor. And, you know, people are surprised how small it is. Um, and yet, you know, every drop we've ever made has been made in that very space, right? Except for when we were in a smaller place before. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've never, you know, sourced liquid um, from MGP or anybody else. And so every drop comes from that room. And, uh, and so um, in order to make the expansion work, you know, we have uh, eight pieces of equipment up there right now. We have Ron, the big still, 100-gallon still. I'm sorry, 300-gallon still. We have Barney, the little still that we started with, the 100-gallon still. And then we have the 300-gallon mash tank and six 300-gallon fermenters. So that's nine pieces of equipment, not eight. And um, and so as part of the expansion, we're going to replace Barney, the mash tank, and the six fermenters with new equipment. So okay. custom-built to purpose um, from specific engineering out of Vancouver, uh, Canada. And... Um, so Barney is going to be swapped out for a 600-gallon still and then a 600-gallon mash tank and six 600-gallon fermenters. So um, our total capacity go from about 300 gallons to about uh, 900 gallons, considering we still are having Ron um, in there. Okay. So same kind of batch process, and it's custom-built to fit within the very short sort of headspace that we have in mm-hmm. there. And I've measured that space 70 times you know (laughs) every hvac and every beam up there is well known at this point um and so then really within by the time this 
podcast airs, we should be in the replacement of that stuff. So sadly enough, we have to say goodbye to Barney and the mash tank and those fermenters, but we've sold them to a good home in West Virginia, um, a new distillery starting up that we're going to help get started. The circle of life. Yeah. And, um, and and I mean, Barney's good for another 50 years at least. You know, these things last forever. Yeah. And um, and so then we'll get our new still, which is going to be called D-Ron, which is, um, they, Becky named him Double Ron, um, <laughs> and the name stuck. So D-Ron, Ron and D-Ron. Um, and, uh, and so then they'll be coming in, and, um, and then there's some really nice plant improvements that are happening as well. So the first thing is that we've completed replacing our 100-year-old concrete floors. And that was actually, it's not very sexy to talk about concrete floors, but listen, when you're with friends, when you have bad concrete floors, it's a problem. So we had a hundred year old floors that were made out of horsehair and chalk. And, um, (laughs) of course they were, they were one inch thick. There was no rebar. They were laying directly on top of mud. Um, I mean, they had to be, and, and I was really nervous about replacing them because, you know, this building hadn't been touched. That space hadn't been um, dug in since the 1800s, right? Wow. And so it is entirely possible we could have found a family plot of graves. I mean, all kinds of things that you mm-hmm. could have found there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was mostly worried about finding a sinkhole, frankly, because th- there are a lot of springs in Virginia, and, you know, you could have a big yawning six-foot spring underneath your property and not even know it. Um, so when they were busting out the stuff, the, the, the workers were really nice because they would work from 3 p.m. until 3 a.m., so through the night, so they didn't interrupt production. And uh, so, f- you know, at 1 o'clock in the morning, I'd get on my phone and look at the security cameras and be like, well, there's still some dudes walking around in there, so I guess we don't have a sinkhole, you know, I guess it's all right. <laughs> like, just nervous, so scared. Um, but now we've got, you know, nice 4-inch, um, 75 PSI with rebar and all that stuff, so it's our forever floors in there. So when you took over this building, a few years ago now, you're going to say something silly like 6, 7, 8 years ago now. Yeah, 2013. Yeah, so that's, that's mental. That doesn't eight, make any sense to ago, me. Yeah, uh, <laughs> if you'd said 3 years, I would have agreed with you, let alone 8. I remember there was floor work done then to take it from car showroom mechanic yeah. style to distilling. Were you also hitting the horsehair... Yeah, so Chalk. the floor work at that time was more patch patchwork. So oh, we were okay. simply, you know, filling potholes and with a forklift, which is, you know, four thousand pounds of weight, you know, essentially potholes just get worse and worse and worse all the time. And you fill them and then they get worse again. And so that's what and we had a few holes open up and you would shine a flashlight down them and you didn't see a bottom. And that was where I was worried about sinkholes and things like that. So luckily, luckily, <laughs> now we have a, a, a floor, even if there was a sinkhole, the floor will hold itself in place. Gotcha. And that's the power of rebar. Yeah, yeah, rebar. So you know, it's like in a in a building or whatever. So yeah, we've got we're we're in good shape now for that. And so then we had to pour some new pads. You know, so the the units are sort of elevated on a four inch pad. So we've poured some of those pads gotcha. for the new equipment. Um, in addition to the the pads, then that's the work that's done. Um, we have now also coming in apart from the D Ron and the mash tank and the fermenters, we have a um, 1200 gallon um, spent stillage tank so our current mode of giving our stillage to the farmers is that we will um, bring out a big plastic blue drum and then raise it up on the forklift out on the community sidewalk which is Mm -hmm. our loading zone Mm -hmm. and fill their trucks well 
the new way will be simply just dragging a hose out to the street and then you know that's much safer really in the, in the long run so we'll just pump it from a hose from inside the building well and that really leads me to another one of my questions which is you've got this beautiful facility in downtown purcellville mm. it looks like your walls can't go yeah. anywhere in either direction no. and so as you're thinking about expansion and as you're thinking of this, to my mind, and please do correct me when I'm wrong, not if I'm wrong, this, to my mind, is your third expansion? I think so, yeah. Um, large scale. Third, large I'm, scale I'm, I'm expansion. Right. That's not just some piecemeal thing. Right. Yeah, so so the, the, the facility that we have is the facility we have, right? And so this will always be the facility we have. Um, if you look at... Uh, the one example that jumps to mind is Yingling, right? So if you've ever been to Pennsylvania near Reading, um, the Yingling plant, which is I think the oldest American independently owned brewery, I think so, yeah, right? I think so. You know, it's an archaic, two uh, hundred year old building, you know, and it's wood, and they, you know, have the mashing at the top, and everything gravity feeds down every story below it until mm. they get to bottling at the bottom. Um, but it's very small. Like, it's as big as us here right now. And so you're like, Yingling's a huge brand. That's no way they're making all that. And, of course, you learn when you ask enough questions <laughs> on the tour that their main production is in Tampa Bay and some big industrial building that looks like a data center, right? Nobody, uh -huh. nobody would ever know. Um, so, of course, it is. Um, for us, what we've, done, what we've done for our production is uh, – for the time being, and, and that could be 10 years even, um, you know, we will do production here on Main Street in Percival. But we bought a long time ago now, it's probably been three or four years now even, a 15,000 square foot building in Berryville, right? You saw it today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so it is divided into uh, six different bays, each one about 2,000 square feet and um, 2,500 square feet, something like that. Um, and so right now we're using two of those bays, one for barrel storage and we're using one for dry goods. And there are other bays that now presently are being leased out to, you know, plumbers and, you know, other businesses. Well, that's our expansion plan. So um, if you follow our workflow today in the distillery, you know, we mash here, we ferment here. So we start with the grain, we mash, we ferment, we distill, right? We get the new make spirit. We fill the barrels here, and then the barrels transit out to the warehouse mm -hmm. 12 miles away. We deposit them for storage, and then we pick up the ones that are ready, bring them back here, bring them down in proof, and bottle them here. So the product goes here, 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 out there, mm -hmm. and then back here. And then it ships from here to Richmond or you know New Jersey or wherever it's going. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, so the first logical expansion then would be to, to move the bottling operations out there, right? So it's all treated under the same bond. So it's all under the same distillery license. Mm -hmm. But then we would basically take the product, fill the new make barrels here, bring the barrels out there to age. And when it's time to bottle, instead of bringing them back here, mm. just do it there, mm -hmm. right? Bottle it and then ship it from there. So you don't have to make the double journey back. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the first thing. That would free up what's today our bottling space here yeah. that we could do something else with that space here. And we have the space out there. All we'd really need to install out there would be the bottling line and some compressed air and a few sort of infrastructure things to do that. So, so obviously, uh, you know, we should never say never, and I'm not going to commit you to the podcast recording today, but it sounds like you would like to keep distillation in Purcellville. I and believe we could. It seems like you can work your square footage. I don't see a reason why we don't have to be able to do that for some time to come. You know, if we get to the point where we need to quadruple again, right, mm -hmm. then we got to think of something new, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Either we go up, 
right? Uh, uh-huh. Get a column still and literally bust through the roof. Yep. Um, there's probably zoning issues with that, you know? <laughs> I mean, being in a historic part of town and everything. Um, or, or we, you know, today we are licensed fully to operate every aspect of the business in that Berryville location. Ah, okay. So tomorrow I could start distilling out there. I'm fully licensed to do so. Gotcha. Um, we just have chosen not to do that yet. So mm-hmm. right now it's just storage. But that's the growth plan. That's the long-term vision uh, for what we would be doing. Fantastic. No, it, it sounds buttoned up. And in the 10 years we've we've known you, we're collaborating. I'm glad you, you think so. <laughs> it's frightening <laughs> as hell to me. Well, every day you get to see how the sausage is made. I yeah. just get to see the, the delicious the sausage. sausage. Right. The, um, you know, the other cool things that are that are in this um, expansion that I didn't mention, apart from the stillage tank, is um, we're getting a massive new glycol system. Oh. So today we've been using all tap water for cooling, and that is extremely expensive, right? Mm. So this glycol system, though it is a big, heavy, expensive system, will pay for itself in water savings over the next three years. Um, and so it's essentially a closed-loop glycol system uh, 43, no, uh, 430 gallon system. That's a big, big system, like a data center size system. <laughs> That's basically going to be chilling all the stills and the fermenters and the mash tank um, all simultaneously. So, okay. I appreciate your pause because you can see the look on my face yeah, that yeah. our listeners cannot. How is that working? Is there like a refrigeration unit yeah. on that? Or- so, in the driveway here mm-hmm. is a large pad about the size of a Volkswagen minibus, okay? So ah, quite large. Okay. And it is just like an HVAC. It's like an air conditioner, um, except it's chilling the fluid, right? So you get 430 gallons of glycol, which is ethylene glycol, which is antifreeze that you use in your car, okay. right? It has a t- uh, freezing temperature lower than water. So you can chill the glycol to, to below water's freezing mm. level and it's still liquid and that's mm. why they like it because you can pump it and you can freeze a tank of wine or something like that solid if you need to um, so basically you you spend all the energy to, to chill down 400 odd gallons of ethylene glycol to a very cold temperature say 40 degrees Celsius uh, no 40 degrees Fahrenheit so 10 degrees Celsius perhaps okay. and um, and then that you pump into the stills um, into the cooling into the condenser mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. so it never comes in contact with the liquid sure it's, it's Sure. In the condenser, and then that's what causes the condensation. Well, the process of of that in the still heats the glycol back up. Mm-hmm, sure. At which point it circulates back into the glycol tank, where the condenser kicks on and, and keeps that stuff running cold. And so there's a lot of calculations that had to be done mm-hmm. with the uh, BTUs and you know the engineering companies. Like, okay, well, how much volume do you have, and how hot is it, and how quickly do you need to drop it? And all that stuff. And they do the calculations and they said, you need a big fucking system. <laughs> and I was going to ask you that question as well, because if in talking to Becky and we've had on, on other uh, episodes and, and we discussed in the warehouse today, Becky is so hell-bent on keeping Catoctin Creek, Catoctin Creek. To my mind, you've now just changed how... Um, <laughs> the C word. It's not condensation. It's how con- how it, it turns back from the gas to the liquid. The um, yeah, uh, condensation. It is. It condensation. is condensation. Yeah, okay, it is. So so you're so you're changing how that condenses from gas to not, liquid. Not really, because okay. it, all you're doing is cooling the spirit, right? So whether you're cooling that with water or cooling that with your blood, I mean, whatever it is, as long as that spirit cools from steam to liquid is what you're trying to get. But it seems like with these guy call numbers, you could 
chill it rapidly. Yeah. You could pass a larger but, volume. Yeah. But we're only passing spirit through in a parsimonious way, mm-hmm. right? So we're still boiling it in such a manner that only the spirit that we want to come through comes through, right? And we can control the temperature of the glycol just uh, like we control the temperature of the water yes. in the deflagmator at the top of the still. And so that's the real that's the real key is the deflagmator temperature. And so you can run that hotter or colder by letting it linger longer in the still or not. You know, those are the things. And that's that we the can part control. I was kind of yeah, chasing yeah. there. I will say there we do see because we use tap water, we do see seasonal variations in the water temperature, right? In the Makes winter, sense. the water in the water tower is ice cold, and in the summertime, it's a little more lukewarm, mm-hmm. and that does affect our efficiency in the distillation. So Becky always says she loves distilling in the winter because the water is ice cold and things just get done quicker, mm-hmm. right? So you mm-hmm. don't have to wait around all damn day, especially when cooling the mash tank, right? You're trying to get a boiling hot kettle of 300 gallons of mash to cool down to room temperature. That takes longer mm-hmm. when the ambient temperature of the water is 20 degrees warmer well and for our home brewers out there right it's same thing you know it's, it's a different volume yeah. but it's the same thing yeah. right it's it's good to brew in the winter mm-hmm. because you can cool down your mash which right. then turns down hopefully the risk of contamination and right. you can get your yeast pitched right. sooner right. like it and ma- you don't makes spend sense. all damn day in the distillery exactly yeah. Yeah. right that so makes that, sense. that should be something and then we with the glycol Presumably, we'll find out, of course, but um, you remove that seasonal variation and we should be able to get a nice optimal. And in fact, it should be so optimal that we can do two runs in a day instead of just one. Oh, uh, there so, you go. So that could, go. Be, that could be quite nice. Well, and now you're turning your square footage into a double use. Mm-hmm. And now you've just doubled your volume without doubling your right. square footage. Right. And um, or employees like we mm. can mm-hmm. double the volume without hiring twice as many people. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's expensive to do so. Yeah, we just had this conversation the last couple of months with Lee and Bree Atwood at Backwoods Distilling mm-hmm. in Yakindanda, Australia, Victoria, right. Australia. Right. Right. And anytime I talk to them, I'm always saying, you guys remind me so much of Scott and Becky <laughs> up at Catoctin Creek. And to listen to finite space that you're looking to maximize volume right. and output and how that looks with multiple shifts right. and, and square footage and glycol condensers. Right. Like right. this, it's, I so the, love talking the, to the you and learning all this stuff. The last cool thing that I'll tell you about in the equipment that we are getting Please. is a grain auger. Ooh. So um, if you were an astute observer, you will have noticed we moved all of our grain handling over to the back corner of the building back there. You know when I walk through this building, I only have eyes for you. I'm not <laughs> looking at anything else. That's why I'm mentioning it now. So <laughs> the uh, so anyway, we moved all of our grain handling. And so we had these control rooms, which we were originally using for just storage of like drums and barrels and things that were in the way. And so these are tiny little rooms about the size of a large walk-in closet, right? Mm. But they're fully ventilated, um, and they had, you know, doors on them. Well, as it turns out, one of those is perfect for, for grain handling because grain is dusty, dirty stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So our today grain handling procedure is Becky would take a mash bill of different ryes, right? We are 100% rye, but she'll pull from different farms to get a complexity of flavor. So 30% from Rappahannock, 20% from Loudoun, 20% from Lancaster, you know, those building that that profile. And so that would mean taking 50-pound bags from each of those farms, you know, six of those, two of those, and three of those, or whatever. And um, 
And then we would put them on a pallet, lift them up on the forklift next to the mash tank, right? And then some guy would mount a ladder and slice the bags open and dump them in from the forklift, which is, there's danger involved. You've got Mm -hmm. a big piece of forklift next to the tank. You've got a guy on a ladder and all those kinds of things. So what we decided to do is we got a hopper. And in that room, then we'll simply walk six feet from the where the grain is stored into the room with a single 50-pound bag, and you lay it on top of the hopper. The hopper has like a grill, like a barbecue grill, right? You just lay it on the grill, slice it, and everything will fall into the hopper. Nice. Right? Then you throw the bag away. Easy. Um, and it contains all the grain dust in that room, so we don't have the whole building filled with freaking grain dust like it is today. Nice. And then an auger, which is basically like a big screw drive inside of a PVC pipe, will we'll carry the grain all the way up and around the building and drop it right into the mash tank. Is the auger the Archimedes screw? Is that? It's kind of like that, yeah. The guy, the way similar. he described it is kind of a deconstructed slinky. If you pull a slinky apart ah, and place it inside, okay. and then it turns. Yes, and it yes, feeds, yes, yes. It feeds that grain along the pipe. That's the part. Yeah, it's like a screw, exactly. And so that that will be our new grain filling. And so you simply will, you know, turn on the mash tank, begin agitating the hot water, and then go fill the hopper with all the grain, and then walk back over, and lo and behold, it's all good and ready to go. What a game changer yeah. for, for everybody on the floor here. Yeah, I love a lot less this. A lot less back, you know, bending work and that kind of stuff, yeah. So it's another improvement in safety and in everything else. And it's not actually that expensive either. Uh, these systems okay. are pretty affordable. Okay. So. Well, one of the things you had me thinking about earlier is this this tap water. And one of the things that I hear going around Scotland is this reclaiming of the water mm. that's used mm. and, and these kind of environmental leanings. Mm-hmm. At Catawton Creek, you've been environmentally minded yeah. for a long time, and almost to such a degree that I sometimes forget that you've got solar panels mm-hmm. the the length of your roof yeah yeah and are, and you're 44,000 watts are, are you a hundred percent power percent 80 percent powered by that by solar, solar yeah. but now here you are your water situation's going to change you're yeah. you're not gonna have to be well so we always try to make the best of what we're doing at the moment right and so all of our water that we use for condensation um, and cooling in the stills we would collect in in drums mm-hmm. and that water became the mash water for the next day so a the water is already pretty close to boiling when you get it anyway mm-hmm. right so there's not a lot of energy then spent to heat it up to boiling for mashing mm-hmm. um, and, and b you don't want to throw that water down the drain and then fill the tank tank with a equal quantity of new water right so <laughs> so we've been able to make use of that water without um, wasting it um, which is which is good um, that we did in in this new operation. Um, we will still use a lot of water for mashing. Obviously, you have to use water for mashing, mm-hmm. but uh, but we won't use as much for cooling. So because otherwise we'd have a triple the amount of water used, you know, for cooling than we're, we're using today. Are there other places where you're you're fine tuning? I, I feel like you've done a lot of broad strokes on your kind of environmental awareness. Are there little places you either are fine tuning or that you'd like to fine tune? Um, we have spent a lot of time um, focusing on you know environmental stuff and little tweaks here and there all the time you know every little thing that we can recycle from office paper to whatever gets recycled and things that we can reuse um but you know maybe the most interesting thing that that uh, my architect told me you know and he was a big part of designing this plant um was you know we were talking about the solar panels and all this efficiency and things that we're doing that are green and sustainable and he says you know the greenest thing you ever did was reuse that old building 
He said, a lot of times ah. you take a hundred year old building and you level it, all that stuff goes to landfill, and then you use all these new materials to build it. He's like, you know, the use of that old Buick dealership is the by and far the biggest green thing you did in the whole operation. And so, talk about something you know, nobody thinking, would consider. Right. And it's like, oh, it's a pretty building. Yeah, it's neat. It's <laughs> cool. It's got some history. Yes. And it's extremely green to reuse something that's already standing. So that's very cool. Yeah. I like like that a lot. Um, I'm going to go from the, the good and exciting stuff to the less good and exciting stuff, okay. but it, it's not a visit with Scott Harris or even a phone call with Scott Harris if we haven't discussed, and by this point I think we just call them fucking tariffs, um, <laughs> Joshua and I have been celebrating yeah. the, the scotch coming over here, those tariffs have gone away. Yeah, we, we haven't are, gotten the quid pro quo yet. Right, there's, there's a lot of distilled products that can now leave the United States without reciprocal tariffs. Right. But you, as a whiskey producer, still have your 25% tariffs going into Europe. Do you have a sense of why that's the case? What's going on? And what will it take to yeah. get those to go the way of the dodo? I think we're working on it. Um, as I said before, but I would have said um, we never will see the tariffs go away under the old administration. Right? The old administration mm -hmm. used tariffs as a policy tool. And um, and the new administration is somewhat hamstrung by the old administration's things, right? So the problem is we got three different tariffs that are in place, right? There's the steel aluminum tariffs, there's the Boeing Airbus dispute, and there's the whiskey tariffs, right? So the whiskey tariffs on American whiskey in Europe are retaliatory for the American positions on steel, aluminum, and Boeing Airbus, which sucks because it's like, I don't care about airplanes and, and steel. Yep. I, I just want to sell whiskey. Yep. But they know that's where the levers of power are, right? Well, I guess the American aluminum and steel workers are really happy with those tariffs in place. And that's a traditionally democratic contingency. Hmm. And so it's become politically difficult to undo those tariffs, even though they... You know, research shows they don't really help any. Mm -hmm. um, that American steel jobs are not here because we're not doing that as much anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like like saving coal. Like there's not that much coal to save. All these plants are going to natural gas for a reason, and it's not because coal is dirty. Um, so anyway, there's the little bit of politics, but the nevertheless, those steel aluminum tariffs are harder to remove than they were to put in place, mm -hmm. and therefore the the whiskey tariffs are still in place quid pro quo for mm. that. Now, um, we have seen some positive directions. They were set to double in June to 50%, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. so Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade representative who works for President Biden, um, you know, has been negotiating, I think, in good faith to let's all get to a place where we're trade partners again and not trade adv adversaries. Yep. Um, and so they suspended that 50% um, doubling that was going to happen. So that's good because that would have absolutely killed all American whiskey business in Europe. Um, and uh, and they're working, I think, to remove the 25% tariff, but it has not been removed yet. So um, so we wait um, more and more. We wait. And there are no whispers there of it, it could be a, a little bit, it could be a, a bit more... N the, the, I will say for the first time we have reasons for optimism and hope. You know, in the last administration, it was like, screw it. This is what's going to be. There's not going to be a change unless there's a change of presidency. 
I think with this new administration, there is reason to hope that they're working towards it. I think they want to see Europe as a valuable partner. Sure. It's not all transactional, you know. Um, so so there's reason for hope, but but they're not gone until they're gone. So and it's it's like sort of the the direct and consumer shipping. The longer it lasts in place, the more permanent it, it can end up being. Right? Yeah, it so, becomes harder to remove them right. when they've got a backstory. When they've been there six, seven, eight years now. Or oh, that would be terrible. Yeah. Uh, so, are you are you still doing business in Europe? You're you're not growing the business not, in Europe. We're not growing the business in Europe. Europe was a key focus for growth for us pre-tariff, and it's been basically stagnant since then. Yeah. So we have some new business over there. We actually started selling in the UK, and it's remains to be seen what the UK is going to do in their own because they had Brexit to deal with, right? Well, as as my UK distributor said, you know, the UK office for tariffs, whatever they're called, um, is new, right? They had to create it because it's not EU anymore, right? And so sure. they want to get this absolutely right. So they're being very diligent in in what they're doing, which means they haven't decided anything yet. It's taking a long time. Mm-hmm. Are they going to go tariff-free with the US? Or are they going to keep the European things in place? We don't know. And so there's a big lobby in Britain to basically abolish the whiskey tariffs mm-hmm. for Britain. Like, okay, we're not EU, so why should we have those tariffs? Let's have a trade deal with the US and have most favored between us. Um, but that is not the case today either. So again, Brexit and EU and tariffs, all of that crap came together in a, in a perfect storm of crap for whiskey producers. <laughs> so, so given that on one hand, yes, you have to be patient here. And, and on one hand, yes, you hope these do go away eventually. You're still a young man running a business over here. Have you made maneuver? And obviously, this is all happening under COVID and a global pandemic as well. Mm. Are you able to carve out other markets? Are there other places where you've turned your attention and said this could in its own right be a Catoctin Creek market? Yeah, so in light of that, we expanded into Canada and Mexico. Right, so we have some trade packs with those countries, and of course, we did Mexico right before COVID. Like I literally did the launch like in November of nineteen, okay, and then by January and February we're into COVID. So you know that was poor timing on, on my part. You know, not knowing that there was going to be a global <laughs> pandemic. We're not going to hold that one against you. Okay, yeah, I didn't see it coming at all. <laughs> Look um, at a business owner, are you? You didn't yeah. see a global pandemic coming. I didn't have that one in my risk mitigation <laughs> matrix. Um, so, so Mexico and then Canada, of course, uh, also a, a country we can do business with. But frankly, our business in the U.S. has been strong and seems to be on an upward trend. Um, so, you know, I think we have enough business that we can just sell here in the U.S. and, and be happy with that uh, should we need to. And I've got a few things up my sleeve for Europe, too. So there's some, there's some opportunities in Europe that I think can sidestep the tariffs. Ways to um, make it work. I think we'll make, make do with, yeah. Well, and, and you just brought up the United States there, and I was about to ask you that question, is you're, you're 10 years into this, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering my numbers mm-hmm. correctly. Your numbers match our numbers. This so-called craft industry, mm-hmm. as you're talking earlier about our little still that has served us from day one, that took on a secondary role as we grew, uh, is now off for a, a life, you know, not it's quite upstate, else. but right. neighboring state. It's right. going going to the farm in a neighboring state. It's, right. it's going to live out its life on a farm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and I and I made the comment circle of life. But what are you seeing for this industry that we call the craft distilling industry? Do you think that 
name even fits for the industry? Yeah. And are you seeing a separation of, obviously there's the Kentucky mm -hmm. big boys who sure. are doing their thing. Sure. But then there's also this, for me, this next level down are the industries who started up around those 2010s, give or take five years. Mm -hmm. And I hope I don't offend anybody with that one. But they're now in a place where somebody who came in in 2018 and mm -hmm. 2021 isn't in. Yeah. Writ large. Yeah. So so I do think there are sort of three levels of strata, if you will. Um, the term craft, I'll just say it here. It's kind of a caveat, um, is, is a loaded term, right? So the big guys don't like use the word craft because what they do is crafty mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. you, you if you visited woodford reserve you see you know they they spend labor over their barrels and they they do a good job of what they do and they you know make the spirit they just make it bigger and sell more of it mm -hmm. so you know it, it is i think a proper criticism of using the word craft that you know the big guys do good stuff and unlike the beer industry you know the whole craft beer industry started because the big guys made pish mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. i mean they really did right yeah. nobody liked budweiser nobody liked coors light and so that's where craft came in and said let's make big bolstery flavorful beers mm -hmm. right but we never had that in the in the whiskey industry right the big guys whether it be scotch or bourbon always made really good quality stuff yeah. right and so what was the value proposition for a small producer? Um, so like it or not, the word craft has come to be synonymous with small producer, right? That's just what it is. So accepting that, you know, because that's what people are doing, then what makes us different is the ability to do things the big guys won't do, can't do. Um, and so, for example, you know, making a pot-stilled rye whiskey from Virginia terroir, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to get that from a big guy, mm -hmm. you know? You're only going to get that from Catoctin Creek. And when people taste our stuff, they say, this doesn't taste like rye whiskey. And I'm like, well, of course it tastes like rye whiskey. It's 100% rye. <laughs> this is what Virginia rye tastes like, yeah. you know? And so, because 90% of what they had came from MGP, you know, different mm -hmm. bottles, different labels, but it was all MGP. So mm -hmm. they thought all rye must taste like dill. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. 95.5. And ours doesn't. Um, and uh, and so that's, to me, sort of, you know, my definition of craft now is that we're doing something special, handcrafted, you know, smaller scale than what the big guys are doing. Um, but I still want to say, you know, I have the big respect for what the big guys are doing because they obviously I would like to be one someday. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Seems the, like the um, goal. The uh, other aspect of your question, then, that sort of, there, I, I sort of see kind of three strata, right? So we have the big, big guys, Brown Foreman and Diageo, and those guys doing their thing, right? And then um, there's the little guys who are starting today, okay? And I'll talk about that in a second. And then there's where we are, sort of the the alumni who've been at it for about 10, 15 years, right? So Tuttletown, us. Um, few Koval, you know, you can sort of name off uh, dad's hat, you know, the guys who've mm -hmm. been doing this for a while um, and doing a good job of it and still here today. Right? Yep. Because yep. there are some who aren't. Um, and, um, and so that level, that middle strata, I, I believe we came in at a time when there were opportunities available that aren't available today. And that's what my question was yeah. getting at. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, go so, on. so basically like distribution opportunities, right? So we, at the time, couldn't sell on site. We couldn't sell in the state except through the ABC system. We couldn't, you know, sell in a store. We couldn't do tastings. So we had to do wholesale. And so we did. And so we chose a, a business plan that put our whiskey 
at wholesale out to distributors. And once you get one or two, then you can get three or four, and you start to do that. And distributors at the time were interested in new craft brands. They didn't have a lot in their book, mm-hmm. and so they were willing to take on new companies. And so then all the, the companies, like I just mentioned, basically you know peppered across the nation in 10 or 12 states each you know and and began to show up in some of the nice big you know places like Binnie's in Chicago and mm-hmm. you know Julio's in Massachusetts mm-hmm. um, and so um, so so that's kind of how that happened and so we kind of got in on the ground floor of the craft movement and it's cool that we're kind of still here today and we've sort of etched out some space for ourselves that we have now been able to sort of claim Mm-hmm. Now, if you're starting today, that's nearly impossible. Nearly impossible, right? Distributors are not taking on new brands. Many distributors have closed. Many have merged into bigger distributors, right? Mm-hmm. And brands have consolidated. Um, and so it's just a really hostile environment for a totally new brand to come onto the market unless you have millions of dollars in marketing spends um, that you can convince the distributors that are, you're going to do well with. Um, you're just not going to get started. You're never going to get started. So the business model that works for the distillers today is the local pub model. And yep. so that's what I'm seeing. Even in yep. Virginia, it's like you have to have a tasting room and you have to have a business plan that you can sell everything. All the money you're going to make is out of your tasting room. And maybe you can park yourself on a really busy highway like I-81 or I-95, you know, in some touristy town like Gatlinburg, Tennessee, or something like that where you can get a ton of foot traffic. Yeah. Um, and, and then I think you can be quite successful with that. But it's a different business model from the wholesale national kind of aspirations. Do you think like a daisy through concrete, one or two of that style of craft distiller could go national? I do. If they make something truly special, unique, and 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 well done, then you can get noticed and, and go national. But I think you have to do that successfully first. And I think that's the, the, yeah. the gatekeeping that's happening now. Um, I think it's going to be rare to see a brand just pop into the radar. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uncle Nearest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So famous Fawn Weaver. She is a marketing genius. She had a lot of capital. She had a lot of venture capital from um, uh, Wall Street you know, investors that invested in her company. And she's a genius at what she does. Well, she created a brand out of whole cloth, right? Um, has an amazing story attached to it, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and so she was able to do that and and get the attention um, and respect of those big distributors and get herself into national distribution pretty much overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that's a unicorn. But, but I think of the corollary with the NFL mm-hmm. and in my time at, briefly with Washington State University, mm-hmm. there we had an educator there who would tell football players, "You have a you know." A college player has a 4% chance of going on to the NFL. And you're at Washington State University. You're not at Alabama. You're not at Florida. You're at Washington State University. And each of those football players at Washington State University believed they would be the one who would make it to the NFL. It's the same thing in high school. Every kid in high school thinks he's going to get to get to college on a on a soccer uh, lacrosse scholarship, (laughs) right? And it's just not going to happen. And so it strikes me that within within the ongoing craft distilling scene, 
you could say to someone, look, you're going to have to get it through your tasting room. You're going to have to have some unique project. But the reason entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs is they believe they will be yeah, the daisy through concrete, uh, the college I, player I in have, the NFL. I have said it before. I mean, my the words I used was, I, I believed everything I was doing was ordained by God. So <laughs> I, I really did. I really did. I thought that the waters were parting in front of me, uh-huh. that, that, that problems were, were falling away because it was my mission. Wow. God wants me to make whiskey and it's a bit of a delusion really but it's the delusion that drives you you know you can do no wrong and um eventually that's replaced with tedious monotony but uh um the uh it it, it, there is the entrepreneur you're right the entrepreneur is is almost you know mentally broken in in thinking that what they can do and they can do anything um and that's where you get some of the hard knocks honestly you know you 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 make something you say is absolutely amazing, fantastic, gorgeous, and then for the first time you show it in Sacramento, mm-hmm. right, someplace that they've never heard of you, mm-hmm. and and they they don't want to drink it, and they walk over to the table and drink some peanut butter flavored whiskey instead, and you're like, ugh. <laughs> and, and then you have deep dark uh, nights, yeah, you know, in the uh, hotel room. I've been there. Yeah, so. I'm laughing on the inside and dying on the inside. I'm laughing on the outside and dying on the story. inside. Yeah. That's painful stuff. Yeah. Painful. Well, in the interest of, of getting us out of here, and we are going to transition over to the second part of this chat. And we'll get to hear a little bit more from De- Becky in the second part of this chat. But just very quickly, as we get out of here, mm-hmm. you've, you've teased it as we've gone along. And, and I ask you this question every time I see you. What's, what's exciting, but not even in the distant future? Mm-hmm. What's immediately exciting for Scott and Becky Harris and the team at Catoctin Creek? Well, certainly the equipment install is imminently upon us, and we're going to have a very busy time of that with forklifts and rigging equipment and all that stuff. So it's like building on an extension to your house, right? That's quite exciting. And once you get it, it'll be exciting because it's all here Mm -hmm. and we can take pictures and put it on social media and all that stuff. So that's really good. Um, Beyond that, you know, I am rather bullish on 2022 2023 i do believe we're coming out of this pandemic i think people are getting vaccinated and and the worst days are behind us you know i feel bad for those who won't get vaccinated because i think there's some really reasons for concern with some of the variants coming out Mm -hmm. um but but you know in this community that we're in everybody's vaccinated and so life is returning to normal and that's really really wonderful and i do believe you know we people talk about the roaring 20s right after the 1918 pandemic and i think we're seeing signs of that now people want to come out they want to spend money they want mm. to enjoy life right they spent a year cooped up wondering what the meaning of life was and now it's bacchanalia right mm-hmm. and i really think mm-hmm. that's coming and so i'm really really bullish on on that um we're starting to see some early numbers that uh support that um so we, you know we are excited by that and it would be nice to uh to lock in a couple really good years after a really really tough year absolutely yeah you're, you're seeing people coming back to the tasting room taking bottles off your shelves yeah i'll give you a hard hard uh, just kind of put it in terms um pre pre-covid you know um we would get you know we had the room set at like 50 people right um, it's a small tasting room, 50 people max. And so we would get a certain revenue per week on that, on that 50 people that came in. During COVID then, when we were locked down, um, when people were allowed in there, we were locked down at 25 people, so half capacity. Mm-hmm. And yet we were seeing the same revenue from the half the people. 
Interesting. And so that meant half the people were buying twice as much. And now that we've been able to add more people back, well, that has stuck. So people are buying more um, as they're coming back. And, and you know, I don't totally understand it. <laughs> um, but it's, don't won- fight it. it's wonderful to see. It really is. And, and you know, maybe it's just people weren't affiliated with the brand before, and then they tried it, and they really liked it, and now they like it, and they're buying it more often. Or I don't even know, but um, but you know, our message is getting out there, and the whiskey is selling, and so that's really really nice. But but, but also, and I say this as a as a close outsider, look what you're doing for Virginia. Look how you're representing Virginia, yeah. and to think about people in Virginia coming out and supporting that yeah. that's an aspect that would make sense to me as somebody who shares the state with you mm-hmm. and sees how you're viewed and talked about and thought of so yeah that, that yeah. part makes sense, we sense definitely to me. i mean that's our whole identity you know we are the virginia rye whiskey and we're trying very hard to um show the rest of the world why is this really special and and you know this birthplace of american whiskey and, and here's a taste of what that is well the, the thing that joshua and i always say to you and becky is we've we've loved you for a decade and we continue to love you and watching the expanse is brilliant you're good people doing good things oh, and supporting you. families along the way yeah and we love collaborating with you oh thanks guys it's always been such fun cheers my man cheers Thanks to Scott for his time. I'd been hanging out with him and Becky for a while. They're both incredibly busy people. We've said it about Becky numerous times previously. (laughs) If you can get Becky to sit down for 10 minutes, I think you've achieved something major. And we had (laughs) talked about her coming in and sitting down with me and Scott for Mm -hmm. a bit of of time. And it just didn't work out for her, just the way the day was going. However, I did have the opportunity to spend time in the warehouse with both of them Mm -hmm. pulling a sample of our collaboration, Uh, one of our Spirit of Collaboration projects that we've got going on with Scott and Becky. And it's a cask that you and I have been talking about before on the podcast, mm-hmm. yeah. we have you know, we've certainly made no secret of it. People in the nation have certainly been asking us, is that coming? Is that coming? Is that coming? So I'm going to say a little bit about it just to bring everyone up to speed. Then we're going to go into the recording and then you and I will come uh, back that's, and taste. That's, that's much better. I, I like that. I want to hear what yes. the three of you have to say. And then uh, that'll be a good reference point. Good. So for anybody joining us for the very first time, we took, and I'm about to say this to Becky uh, as my first question, but I'll say it here anyway. (laughs) We took two Catoctin Creek no-cuts casks, the only two casks they have in their facility that were produced without cuts. And in a moment, Becky's going to explain that process. Okay, good, good, good. I, I was going to ask you to explain, but good. Right. Yeah. Those no-cuts casks were matured for, again, 15 months, 18 months, something like that. And then we, you and I, Single Cast Nation, brought in an ex-Pedro Jimenez hogshead from Calhoun Distillery, mm-hmm. as we were just talking about yep. Calhoun earlier in this connection. episode. Yep. And we combined the two 30-gallon no-cuts casks 
which were new charred oak, mm-hmm. into this X Kilhoman PX Hoggy. At the time of tasting, which would have been July 2021, these two casts had been combined since September of 2019. Yes. Yep. So, so not quite two years, but, but getting there. Yep. And, and when the three of us taste this in the warehouse, the listeners are going to hear <laughs> the very first moment the glass comes to our nose, touches our palate... There was no pre-gaming here. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. pulled the sample, we poured it, and then we hit record on the microphones. And when, when's, what's the last iteration that you tasted prior to this? Was it, was it when you and I were in Kentucky September of 2020? Potentially, and I, and I do I do say this in the recording that I really can't quite remember. I also remember there being a January, but I don't know if it was January of this year or January of last year. Mm. But there was there was there was a sample that had us questioning the trajectory of maturation. Yeah, and yes, yep. And we talk a little bit about that in this segment as well. So this segment runs maybe maybe 20 minutes or so, just the three of us having a chat about this particular whiskey and maturation uh, in their warehouse. The We're standing in the Catalton Creek warehouse. I'm surrounded by barrels. Even better than that, I'm surrounded by Scott and Becky Harris, which... Surrounded. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I'm feeling standing in this corner here with the barrels around me. Um, We are here to taste the collaboration that we've been working on for a little while here. We've got Catoctin Creek No Cuts Rye, two 30-gallon casts of that combined into a Colhoman X sherry hogshead. It's 59 gallons. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about that. Becky, before we pull this up to our noses, before we jump into this, the liquid's beautifully dark, uh, I'm seeing. When we talk about this Catoctin Creek no cuts, that was a special project you did. You discussed it on a previous episode. Would you mind refreshing our listeners on what the No Cuts Catoctin Creek is all about, please? Right. So what we were doing in this particular um, run was we wanted to simulate, essentially, what it would be like to run our, our, um, our mash, our beer, through a simulated beer still. And when you're running it through this beer still, you don't necessarily make those cuts. And so it's a way to kind of decide, do I want to do that or do I really want to stay with like the pot still type of... So we were doing it as an experiment. And so we just ran it all through at top speed, go through, and then thought we'd see what it was like. And it was really interesting to taste it, but it wasn't at all necessarily like our normal stuff and so that was why it was kind of like a little uh experiment that was hanging around (laughs) why were you looking to do a no cuts Catoctin Creek um we had had a conversation with um Larry Ebersold, who used to be the uh, master distiller when it was Seagram's, back when MGP was Seagram's Mm -hmm. and he was you know his um 
one of the things he talked about was that, you know, as you grow, it's like kind of a, it, there's not a good economic argument to stay with pot still distillation because what takes me nine hours to do goes through a beer still in about three minutes. <laughs> and so he was, you know, kind of, that's that's his whole background is working with beer stills and so his contention was you guys should really look at this from an economic standpoint and you know the economic argument you can't really refute you but mm -hmm. what you can refute is the difference in flavor between pot still distillation and uh, beer still distillation it's not that one is better or worse but they're different and so as a company, we felt like it was important to try to do something that the big guys don't want to do, mm. especially with rye. And I think in the earlier episode, when we were talking about this, you talked about that level of control that you get with your own still. And you can really, and I, these aren't your words, you would never speak like this. These are my words, where you could put your personality your stamp, but maybe the, the, the easier we talk about it is the Catoctin Creek style is more controllable when you're fully hands-on than when you're just running it through this so-called beer still. Right, agreed. And I would also say that one of the interesting things is, you know, there have been some discussions of late um, on like the whole three chamber still type of thing that what Leopold brothers did their three chamber rye and Todd Leopold talks about how you know the design of that still is is supposed to facilitate the um kind of distillation at from a mash that has very little alcohol left at the bottom because mm -hmm. of course mm -hmm. those are the three different chambers and what's mm -hmm. interesting about pot still distillation and specifically about the way we run our rye is that a certain chunk of our distillation time is spent toward the end and the spirit's coming up very slowly and we're mostly distilling stuff from a very low percentage of the the alcohol left in the mash and he talks about it being really important to get that texture and stuff and to me I feel like that's really kind of resonated with me because I felt like that was really important part of our way of running our stills is that a big portion of it is pulling out a relatively small amount of alcohol, but it's toward the end. Mm -hmm. And you're really kind of getting these concentrated flavors that have been cooking for a while. And so there's, you know, when you cook something for a while, it doesn't taste the same as when you first start cooking it. Sure. And so I like to think of it as getting the essence of that, that mash that's been cooking for a while. That brings out other flavors, other esters, other oils. All those things are coming out at the end, and that gives you texture and flavor and goodness. And so I feel like I, I, when he was talking about it, when I was watching his thing, I was really resonating because I felt like that was the same thing we're doing mm. in a different way. The, this is Scott. The, you know, the analogy that I use um, to understand this, um, what we do, and, and I really want to sort of emphasize what Becky said about doing something that the big guys aren't willing to do, right? Mm -hmm. This nine hour run 
and that cooking reaction um, is really, really important then to the batch process. And it's not just about, you know, two different ways of removing the alcohol. Um, we are, in fact, changing the mash as it's in there. It's cooking and changing. And so the analogy that I really find useful is if you think about tomato um, sauce, right? So mm -hmm. if you go out to your garden and you gather, you know, a dozen tomatoes, right? Then you puree them in a blender and drink it right away. It's going to taste very acidic, very bright, you know, very watery, um, but then if you cook it on the stove for nine hours on low heat, right, it's going to do change, right? Mm. It's going to reduce. It's going to um, caramelize. There's all kinds of things. So a tomato sauce that's cooked on the stove for nine hours is not the same thing as those bright, purely pureed tomatoes. And that's what's happening to the rye mash. So we're getting um, congeners that have changed because of what's happening inside the pot during that nine-hour run. And that's something unique to our stuff and why it tastes the way it does. That's brilliant. And so there are there were only the two barrels from the no cuts experiment. Yeah, that's correct. Because we just did it once, and we um, did, gave it a try. We all tasted it. We tasted it a couple times while it was in the thirty gallon barrels, and we were just like, "Yeah, we can see that it's there, <laughs> but it's really not the direction we wanted to go philosophically." Yeah, that makes that makes good sense. Mm -hmm. And the the two thirty gallon casks. Were they straight up new charred oak? Was there anything yes. special going on with Nothing them? Nothing special. Um, they were kind of our standard barrels that we were using at the time, which I believe was the Minnesota oak. Yeah, Minnesota white oak. Okay, and then in September of 2019, we combined, I say we, this is the royal we. I have the well, video. Well, you were there, you were there. <laughs> I have the video of you two working uh, <laughs> while I was a, a spectator. We combined the two 30 gallons into the 59 gallon ex Holman hoggy. And how long has it been out here in in this particular warehouse? Do you do you so recall it's is that just a <laughs> under? We were just discussing whether it's oh. so September of nineteen, mm -hmm. so a year and what like ten months? Okay, a year okay. and ten months out here. And I think we last tasted it, Joshua and I, and and, and you, Scott, in January of this year. Does that, that make sense that a, a sample was pulled then? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And mm -hmm. one of the things we said at that time, and why I'm so excited, and I have not put my nose in this, I have not tasted this as it's sitting in a glass in front of me. I can I can attest to that. <laughs> I'm so eager. The the thing that Josh and I were hopeful of coming from January, where we were only three four weeks into the winter. We thought if we could get another spring on this, mm -hmm. if we could hop into a hot Virginia summer on this, it's been. we might pull more of that smoke out, more of that sherry out, have this be a bit more expressive. What I'm also curious with you, Becky, is in listening to how you talked about texture and what you normally see from Catoctin Creek and where the no cuts went is, is, is this still recognizable to you as Catoctin Creek, because goodness knows we've we've done a lot to this now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been a trip. <laughs> so well, let's so let's lift it. our glasses. We'll and let's give it. a cheers because it's wonderful oh, to see the three of you. Wonderful. <laughs> the three cheers. of you. <laughs> the three of you. There's only two of you and I haven't even had a drink yet. <laughs> <laughs> It's the wonderful, three, the royal three of us. It's wonderful the for the whiskey th is a person. <laughs> I'm excited to have the three of us back together again. That's what True. I'm seeing very poorly. Oh, hot damn, that's good. Yeah, for, first of all, the color is this wonderful, rich ruby, the sanguine copper. Uh, the oils in the glass are pronounced, something we always look for in, in anything in a single cast nation bottle. And obviously you guys at Catoctin Creek are known for good texture as well. 
copper is a good description. That's right. almost the same color as the stills. I, I love it when it goes in that direction. The nose. Becky, are you, are you drinking much in the way of Isla whiskeys? Um, I haven't recently. No, I think I'm a little low on them. I've, I've, we were, I was looking at our, our, our shelf the other day, and we need to restock. <laughs> We've got a big bottle of Octomore that we rarely touch. Oh, there you go. But it's oh, get smoky into as it. hell. Get into it. So you were saying sweet was That's one of me. your first get, takeaways uh, this here. This is a very sweet nose to me. Do you think the sherry on that is, is coming through a little more? Oh. Maybe that's what it is. I, I get this really gorgeous. I mean, in, there's a touch of smoke around the edges, but it's mm -hmm. not like, to me, it's not as smoky smelling as I thought it would be when we pulled it out. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't mistake this for an Isla. Correct. Just from the nose. But it's not completely invisible. I, I liked it, and I, I hope we got you on the mic there. When you first stuck your nose in this, Scott, you said, hot damn. <laughs> and, and my <laughs> internal dialogue was very similar to that which is just, oh, this is good. This nose immediately has my attention. Are you getting so. <laughs> uh, Are you getting the, the Catoctin Creek? Where is Catoctin Creek in this? I can see you really... For me, the, the Catoctin Creek is the, is the vertebrae. It's the spine mm -hmm. of it, right? So there's this fruity, nutty, mid-palate kind of juiciness that to me describes Catoctin Creek. So I can taste that that fruity nutty is kind of where I always go with that um, in there. But I am definitely oh. getting phenols in the taste. It is rich mm. and it is phenolic. It's just wrapping the smoke around and under my tongue as it goes. The viscosity is perfectly Catoctin. I mean, to me, that's the weight on the tongue. It comes in, it comes in with flavor and intensity at the same time, which I really like in a whiskey, but it's, it's it just kind of drapes itself over and then it has that smoke coming up. Mm. What do you think? As you're talking about that viscosity, I had to take another sip. I had to turn it around in my mouth. I had to coat my tongue with it. That viscosity, viscosity is definitely there. It's then got that, that drying quality, right? The smoke is a little ashy. I, I get what you're saying yeah. about the, the nuttiness as well mm -hmm. there, Scott, where it's almost like a charred uh, peanut, right? An unshelled peanut. But if you've pulled it out, the ashes of a campfire. Yeah. I definitely get the, the smoke is more ashy than it is mm -hmm. um, other things. Um, it, it's, it's really good, though. <laughs> um, there's a... There's an acidity, sometimes I call it acidity, or, or a citric quality to it um, that that I think is sometimes in our whiskey as well. Lemon peel, a little pith, maybe with just a touch of that bitterness, but mm. um, but it's really bright. I mean, it's not heavy or in any way um, over overbearing. Do you remember way back in the beginning when you, you pulled the boise mm. from mm -hmm, the sherry mm -hmm, cask, mm -hmm. and that was like sucking on a charred mm -hmm. stick. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, was, it was hard to get it over your palate. Right. And it's, we talked at the time about a little tiny bit of that goes yeah. a long way. Yeah. Yeah. And now here I am tasting this from the cask, yeah. getting some of that charred oak, yeah. getting some of that rich, deep sherry. But I love your note about the, the citrus in there as well. Yeah. There's a brightness, there's a lightness. 
Holy Des- moly. Despite the really, really rich color and viscosity. Because, mm-hmm. you, you know, this is a radio show. So, you know, if we only talked about dark colors and big viscosity, people are going to think it's really rich and mm-hmm. heavy. Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite bright and really, really something. Yeah. I like your note about the little bit of a lemon pith because it does feel just that little tiny bit. I mean, you you we were talking about astringency versus drying quality mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the, the the language that astringency is sometimes considered to be negative, mm-hmm. but it, it it isn't when it's bracing. It isn't when it brings this kind of little touch of bitterness that kind of wraps around mm. and really balances out some of the sweetness that comes from some of the sherry and things. It's like you need that little bit of astringency to kind of stiffen it up a little bit. Agreed wholeheartedly. And as you're talking there, I'm getting a little bit of bitter chocolate to the back of the palate in the transition to the that. finish. Yeah, I can see that. Dark chocolate, 100% unsweetened or whatever. Right. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's a drinker. There's no doubt about it. This, and here's and here's the thing. Here's why I led with the the January tasting of this, is that each time we tasted this, and we've pulled a thanks to you, good people, we've pulled a full bottle sample each time we've we've kind of pulled a sample because we want to see that transition. We want to go on that journey, and in January it felt like Catoctin Creek was in there. But the smoke really wasn't. The sweet sherry really wasn't. And we'd hoped that this other season would pull more out of that and bring it more together. And as I sample this today, this is the first time in sampling it that I'm getting Catoctin Creek and I'm getting Kilhoman and I'm getting sherry and I'm getting battle, <laughs> battle char. <laughs> it's been a long 18 months. And I'm getting barrel char. So... Really, really magnificent. You know, so, I mean, we have a, a, a quandary or a choice to make. You know, this is the problem with, with doing this is, yeah. so do you declare this to be the best that it can be or do you wait longer hoping for it to get better, right? And that's the real quandary is that it could go back to sleep. You know, it, it could be this is the prime and you take it now or you say, well, let's just see what it's like in the fall. Well, and, and we've, ever since day one, and we bottled a Kilhoman four-year-old in our first outturn of three casks. Mm-hmm. And the number of people who sampled that and said, wow, this is great. But could you imagine it as a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old? And we said, that could be potentially amazing. Yeah. But we loved it on the day we tasted it as a four-year-old. It. It's ephemeral. You have to take it Ex- when you get it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and one of the conversations we had, and we've had this with you, Becky, but we've also had it with Kirsty McCallum when she was still with Glenn Murray. The, the idea that maturation is not linear. And just because it tastes like this today doesn't Absolutely. mean it'll taste like this, but more right. in another month. Absolutely. Or another it's more year. of a sine wave. You know, we, we, right. we've talked with um, Dan Farber, who runs Osakalis, and he has, you know, two, three centuries of experience with brandy making. And he will talk about, you know, um, brandy that goes to sleep in the barrel and mm. it tastes like nothing, mm. you know, 12 years, 13 years. And then on the 14th year, miraculously, for no known reason to science at all, you know, the flavor just blossoms and all of a sudden you've got a fruit bomb, you know. It and, wakes right back up again. Out right. Of and it just says sometimes you have to grab these things when they're ready. 
Well, I, I agree. And I don't think, you know, that's the biggest thing that we deal with when people always ask about our whiskey and, oh, but wouldn't it be better if it were older? Well, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Everything doesn't always get better with age. And that's always the question. I can verify that, but not better <laughs> with age. As, as we're both crouching and finding things to lean on, it's, it's I not did, all better. I, yeah, it, it's always a challenge to figure out when to pull something. Um, I, I would be really excited about drinking this any day. Yeah, I think so. I think this might be, it might be time. I, I think you might be right. The, the thing I want to do is check up on birthday. And yeah. I, th I think I had a birthday in February, to be honest with you. And then the only other thing is the anniversary of when it went into the Coloman cask. Right. But as we stand here, and we don't always give away the dates, but as we stand here on July 9, that's doing the things that Joshua and I were hoping it would do yeah. when we conceived of this project. And I, of course, have to say sincere thanks to the two of you who were on board with this and had something for this and have played along with us every step of the way. So sincere thanks. We, we love you both dearly. Oh, that's... But this is why we do what we do. Well, my pleasure. Somebody stole my glass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as people show up to come and do other work, we have to share. <laughs> uh, I looked down and it wasn't there. <laughs> well, this this is brilliant. Thanks, thanks ever so much. We'll we'll make a final decision on this and and see what we can do. But I love it, and, I, and it's done exactly what we wanted. Great, it's our pleasure. What fun! Brilliant. Cheers, both of you. While we were listening to, to me with Scott and Becky, they're tasting through that and what a treat, gosh, more in a second. I went back into the, the archives here and I checked the samples and we did indeed last taste a sample together in September of 2020 in Kentucky mm. that had been pulled in August of 2020. So there you go, from August really through to July. I, if you'd asked me, I would not have thought we'd gone 11 months between samples, but that's the, that's the yeah, world we inhabit. That, that is it. My gosh, time flies. And, and I'll tell you, I, I remember that taste. <laughs> it'll, it'll be interesting nosing and tasting this against that memory. Well, then um, I think there was... There was that part of the conversation just now with Scott and Becky where, where I'm saying you and I were going through samples thinking this isn't coming together, right? Is there a bit of smoke in here? Yes. Is there a bit of sherry in here? Yes. Is there a bit of Catoctin Creek in here? Yes. Is there a bit of rye in here? Yes. But it, in that last sample that we'd had, it wasn't cohesive. And I think oh. that's the point at which we'd said... If this is August, we're going to close out the fall. We're only going into winter and spring. We might need to sit on this. And I'm not even talking about the samples. I'm not even talking about the next time we thought we'd need to sample it. Just you and I thought this is going to take another warm season oh, yeah. to really get that wood working. And I think your use of at least, right? Mm -hmm. In case any listener just missed that. Yeah, that sense of at least. And so pouring this July with Scott and Becky, I wasn't sure what we were going to get in the glass. Yeah, I, 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 I won't lie. I, I didn't have high hopes 
Um, but that's only because I think I think you and I, I think a lot of people are, are still trying to put our heads around what the course of maturation looks like because it isn't yeah. linear. And we had tasted, you know, if that other sample was pulled in August and you figure in, you know, August, sorry, you figure summer in Virginia is going to really make that cask work and really do some magic on the spirit, you would think, okay, that that's where it's going to taste the best. So when you pulled this sample in July, I said, well, it, it may just be a slightly bigger version of what it tasted like in 2020, but as I'm nosing this, it's, it's remarkable, Jason. This nose it, has all of those components that you just listed out, that entire grocery list, they're now intertwined. They're now yes, cohesive. Yes. And I think that's, it's interesting because on one hand, we, we're clearly finding out that maturation is not linear. However, we combined these two 30-gallon casks in September of 2019. Yep. We, we then saw quite a quiet period in the beginning there. You and I tasted that day one combination sample. Yeah. And it almost had more going on than the January 2020 mm -hmm. sample. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we got to August. So we had our first, you know, bit of summer going on in that in that cask. But last summer in Virginia was actually very wet. Mm. You then cut through to July of 2021, and this summer has been very dry. And I, and I wonder if even if maturation isn't linear, there are key climactic moments yeah. that really register changes in yeah. your cask. Yeah. And so even thinking about September to August to July, we've, we've really hit some moments that have allowed this to come together. And, and I can't, quite remember if, if Scott and I or, or Becky Scott and I had discussed this on wax, but tasting this in July, Scott had said, if you wanted to wait to September to bottle this, you're not going to see a radical transformation mm. in those months. And so my concern there was, gosh, if we go through the month of July, is it going to go off a cliff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and him saying, no, you, there are some key movements what's going to be the bigger difference for you is if you want to bottle this in january yeah this will be a different yeah. cask yeah. than it is july august in obviously into september yeah well you know as as you were going through all of that i had three sips <laughs> and it's easily done right and and the first one came through with a burst of ginger and chicory and and barbecue and and things like that and then the second one you'd been using for a while now with a few different whiskeys backwoods distilling being one and 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 there was another whiskey i think maybe a while <laughs> i turkey, know what you're gonna say where you're saying uh -huh. chocolate cherry that's it yep. i'm not getting chocolate cherry here what i'm getting oh. is chocolate raspberry 
So oh, it, interesting. Yeah, it, interesting. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, br- it's, it's a, a bit brighter than that cherry. And that was just like, but it was warm, right? And that warmth connected to the texture of this. And all in the background, you're just, you're, you're, you're tasting all these flavors. You just happen to be next to a tiny little campfire that's just giving you some smoky ambiance, right? Mm-hmm. For the for the careful listener and for the completionists out there, the, the other distillery was Virginia Distillery Company, mm. where we have an episode coming mm-hmm. up shortly. I tasted an STR cask with mm. them that was was chocolate covered cherries oh through my and gosh. through. Oh, that is excellent. As I tasted it and as I discussed it, oh even gosh. even off wax with yeah. with Scott and Becky started to make me think of of a thread right mm-hmm. if we're looking at these two no cuts Catoctin Creek casks which is just an expression I like saying um uncircumcised and do you want to <laughs> and, and for go down that path yeah sorry Becky and for, for Becky <laughs> <laughs> and for Becky those two casks didn't represent the Catoctin Creek style as she wants it, as you and I are fond of saying, writ large, right? Yep, 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 yep. But as I taste this, and as I discussed it with Scott and Becky, there is a Catoctin thread present here for me, and it occurs in the transition from mid-palate to finish. There's almost a drying blackberry tea happening. Yeah. That... I remember from our first Catoctin Creek, I distinctly remember from our second Catoctin Creek, and now here, even with a no-cuts project, that little bit of drying blackberry tea mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. transitions into the finish for me. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that I've always loved about Catoctin Creek. You know, everybody, everybody's go-to at least in their heads, when when it comes to rye whiskey, is MGP, right? It's that 95.5 mash bill with that spice and the dill pickles. And Catoctin Creek's 100% rye has always been fruitier, blackberries, blueberries, things like that. And and I like you putting that finer point on it of of a blackberry tea, I think that's I think that's really nice because it brings through some of the you can't escape the the oak being in there right so that delicate dryness that exactly. delicate astringency coming through which is so exactly. pleasing yeah which is certainly a back and forth that's run through multiple episodes of the podcast which is this idea that that in Europe you can say astringent <laughs> and in America you cannot yeah. you, you have to say drying in America and I was having that conversation with Scott and Becky that we're grown-ups drinking a rye product. It's okay to experience some astringency on the edges of the tongue, mm-hmm. right? It's it's a pleasing experience. And for me, yeah. it heightens the enjoyment. As, I, as I'm sitting drinking this sample, it's juicy. It's mm-hmm. unctuous. Mm-hmm. It's rich, my dear balancer, right? It's got <laughs> so many things going on. But as it dries the outside edges of the tongue, 
And as it dries the back of the palette, as it transitions to the finish, it has me reaching for it again to take this another juicy sip to bring unctuousness back into my mouth again. And to me, that's the circle of life. This is why I drink alcohol. I love that continuous feedback loop mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. gosh, do, boy, do I want a really tasty beverage today? Oh, boy, does that taste lovely. Oh, yes, that drying. Okay, I better take another one of these down the hatch, right? Mm. I, I love that ongoing process. Go back into it, and I want you to think there's umami in here, and I'm getting it through this nori seaweed wrap kind of note coming mm. through. Mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm, this delicate mm -hmm. umami. Oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. <sighs> Also do this for me, because this is something I did for you back before I shared a sample with you, mm -hmm. where I was busy saying to you, I'm not getting a lot of smoke on it. I'm not mm -hmm. getting a lot of peat on it. It's not It's not overly dank. Mm -hmm. Pour something off your shelf that's really bright, that's really fresh, and then return to the Catoctin Creek. I'm going to pour, oh, actually, I'm going to pour some... Uh, King Street Great Artist Blend. All right. Okay. You know what? I'm going to pour a little Aberlauer bourbon cask. Okay. Cue the Jeopardy music. As I walked over to my shelf after you had mentioned pouring some Abelauer bourbon cask, the, the Abuna Alba caught my eye. And so I thought, eh, that's what I'll go and pour. So I've got Abuna Alba in my glass, natural cast strength, 59.1%. And it is young. We, no age statement, but it is young. But yeah. just 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 get your nose in your Abelauer. Okay. Just, right. just really commit your nose to it. Throw some across your palate. Gosh. I really am so glad Everlauer are doing the uh, Abana Alba. Their spirit shines in bourbon. All right, down the palate. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. I will say, I will say, Alba is not my favorite uh, Abelauer. I've had much better bourbon casts from them, but at fifty nine point one percent, it's easy to, well, to to drink it. I think it's I think it's good enough to warrant a purchase of batch two, to see mm -hmm. how it how it evolves. Um, well, okay, nice. so with a bit of that Abelauer in your nose, mm -hmm. across mm -hmm. your palate, mm -hmm. now go back to this Catoctin Creek. Right. All right, here we go. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Just nosing it. It's really smoky. It's, yep. Yep. Oh, it's, it's it's there's a bit of ashtray going on there. It's, it's slightly dirty. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, to me it's it's more ash than it is campfire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right, isn't that interesting? It, for me, I did detect it before and it was more a campfire before, but Going from the Aberlauer to this, now it, it is more ash. And then put that across the palate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Mm. 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 Oh boy. That's like a I've had a cocktail. I want to say it was at Milk Bar in Chicago where they had this bourbon cocktail where they smoked the bourbon. And mm-hmm. that's I'm getting echoes of that. Just delicate smoke. Um wow. For me, it's got a little bit of the aftertaste of smoking a good cigar. Mm. Just occupies the very back of the, mm. the mouth, the very back of the throat. It's not overpowering. It's not overwhelming. But it's another dimension. Wow. And it's at this point that, that I want to say such, such, and I know I know it's we want to say this. Yes. But it's... It's such a sincere thank you to Scott and Becky where they did a little internal project that didn't fit their distillery needs mm-hmm. that they thought, yeah, that might work for Single Cast Nation. The Nation members might get a kick out of that. But they also allowed us to do something that had never been done in the history of Catoctin Creek. And their history is the same as ours. They're a decade into this. Yeah, yeah. There has never been a Catoctin Creek in an ex-peat cask. There you go. So not only have they trusted us with no cuts, they've also trusted us with a peated cask. I'm trying to rack my brain. So firstly, Scott, Becky, thank you so much. I mean... The fact that you allowed us to to use Catoctin Creek's spirit and, and some of your warehouse space as uh, as a playground for us to collaborate on something that could be very special from many different angles. Um, it gets back to what you were saying before, Jason, where where there's a relationship there that that is a friendship. Right and and we cannot thank them enough. Um, but and, as, and if yeah, I can add on, yeah, yeah, please, please. And this is a spirit of collaboration bottle. Yeah, yeah. I don't think spirit of collaboration could be any clearer than what we're doing with Scott and Becky at Catalton Creek and Kilhoman. Right when we reached out to them, right, you know, we right. we wanted a quality PX cask. We wanted good Isla influence. And when we asked Anthony Wills, can we talk about this being a Kilhoman cask? Because at that point, he he doesn't have to do that. The whiskey yeah, could have yeah. turned out terrible for for all he knows. And if his could have turned just, out terrible for all of us, right? For all of us. <laughs> and I'm sure he wouldn't want his name attached to something. Oh, but yeah. he he trusted us to do that. So huge thank you to to Scott and Becky, and a huge thank you to Anthony Wills as well. Yeah, and I don't want to get us too far away from the original point, and I know you've got a follow-up point, mm. but it also makes me think of our time with Glenn Murray when we found the Fino cask out yeah. in the wild, yep. and then went to Glenn Murray and said, hey, look, we found this cask. I know it's not coming from you directly. Would you mind if we bottled it? And they said, we trust your palate. I feel that way with Scott and Becky and with Anthony. Mm-hmm. Look, this hasn't been done before. This could be hot garbage, yeah. but... The, I think the knowledge was in place there that we would have the good sense to walk away from it and not force it 
into a single Cast Nation exactly. bottle. Exactly. We wouldn't take down our name. We wouldn't take down Catoctin Creek. We wouldn't take down Colhoman. If this had gone horribly wrong, it would have just disappeared from sight. On the flip side of that, <laughs> holy <laughs> moly, yeah. has it gone incredibly <laughs> correct. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your other point? Yeah, so so my other point, and, and you, you started touching on it yet again, is not only is this the first time for Catoctin Creek, I can't think of another time where a rye whiskey or an American whiskey, for that matter, has been extra matured in a peated sherried cask. I know while Turkey has extra matured some of their stuff in peated, they didn't like how it turned out, and I think they dumped the project, similar to what we would have done if we didn't like how ours turned out. So so I, I think that this is that this is big for all of us, for, for Catoctin Creek, Kilhoman, and Single Cast Nation. We're doing something that I don't think has ever been done before, period. And that's exciting. That's really exciting. Really exciting. Yeah. Yep. And to have partners willing to play in the same sandbox oh. is very cool. Yep, yep. So yep. Here, here, here's cheers. Cheers to everybody involved, because this is really, really cool and really exciting. Cheers all. Yeah, cheers all. So, you and I have a cheeky wee bit of news. We have Just some very cheeky. Yeah, really cheeky, really small. We have some emails that came in, but I think we're going to hold them until the next episode. Uh, some really interesting ones that came in, and and in fact, uh, one from our friend Ian Bruce. He's he's emailed us recently, so. Uh, it's nice to see his name popping up again. And I think I saw Dr. Matt Bishop come in. Dr. Matt Bishop and James Foster wrote in again. And and uh, there's one other person. I got a little, pro- I got a little prod from Tim Mooshaw, who, who quoted uh, a comment I made on a previous episode that didn't come to fruition, which we're still working on behind the scenes. Um, I know people are. <laughs> Let's cut to the news and then we'll bring this back up again. <laughs> So first bit of news, Jason, that I'd like to bring up, unless unless you want to, you know, you tease the listeners before the the paper boy spoke. Do you want to share your bit of Tim Mewshaw news? I will t- I will take the birch to myself in just a moment. I will let you put out your news first. <laughs> Uh, so for those of you living in New York and New Jersey, uh, some good news. Our distributor in those two states confirmed to us that Single Cast Nation retail release number seven will be for sale legally uh, come September 1 in those two fair states. Yes? No, just for, just for the benefit of the listener here, I think something that not everybody listening to this podcast would know is that at least for the state of New York, and, and I even know there's there's some slight differences with New Jersey and Connecticut, mm-hmm. but each single cast nation retail cask label has to be approved by the New York government. 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's a registration process, and they have to get a copy of the label. They, I don't know if it's necessarily an approval, but more a logging of those labels, right? So New York is a really good example. We're going to get a bit tangential here, but I think that, I think this is a good tangent to get on. New York is a good example where legally you can't have an exclusive cask or an exclusive mm-hmm. release or exclusive bottling for any shop or, or, or bar or restaurant within New York. Now, that bar or restaurant or shop can purchase a single cask through a distributor, receive that bottle, and then put their little sticker on there. Right? The law doesn't stop them from doing that. The law stops distributors from legally selling to an individual company though individual companies can legally purchase the whole of a cask, right? So you, you see where this happens. And so mm-hmm. with New York, the label registration that includes a picture of what the label looks like is, you know, if they see a cask that says sing, single cask nation, 28-year-old Deluane sherry cask, and, <laughs> and then it has tasting notes on there, tasting notes on the label... And then someone from the NYSLA, New York State Liquor Authority, goes into Joe's Wine and Liquor and sees that what actually has been received is a label that shows an exclusivity message on the label that doesn't match what you registered. People are going to get into trouble, right? So that's mm-hmm. part of the registration process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me, obviously, I'm I'm Scottish. I I live in lived in the UK, raised in the UK, you know. But also speaking to friends in Australia, you know, Sweden. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Finland. What does that look like? It's it's just always interesting to me that on one hand we talk about the United States and we talk about retail release number seven for the United States, mm-hmm. but as it sits in California, it looks one way. As it goes to Alaska, it looks another way. As it goes out to New York, the the jurisprudence, if you will, mm. looks another way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always interesting to me that, gosh, there are so many breakdowns in the United States <sighs> yes. for how individual states go about taking care of business. Yes. So I just thought I would throw that in there just because we're saying all this about it will be legal and it will yes. finally be on shelves. Well, there's a reason why it takes time and it's bureaucracy. Here we are. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, Alaska is a good point to bring up because our whiskeys are in Alaska for anybody uh, from Alaska listening in. So, so that's good news. So, yeah, so come September 1, New York, New Jersey people, whether you're just a consumer, or you're interested in single cast nation release number seven, you can start reaching out to your retailers, see if they'll bring it in. If you're a retailer or bar owner or something like that, our distributor is Skernick Wines, so check them out. If you have an account with them, great. If you don't, it's pretty free to get an account with them. So, so go ahead and do that if you're interested in single cast nation products. Uh, that was my bit of news, Jason. So let's let's I here. Let me hand you an olive branch, not an olive branch, but just a branch <laughs> to, to beat birch. your fucking back with. Well, there you go. I, I prefer the birch. Please, if you could just hand over the birch, that would be sufficient. <laughs> Don't call me a birch. <laughs> Life's a birch. 
on and then on the know. last episode of One Nation Under Whiskey, um, I said we said that the retail release number seven information would be on the website. <sighs> yes, we and, did, Jason. And Tim, our beloved, beloved Tim, reached out to me. Uh, it was a lovely email. He said a host of other things, but he closed with the acknowledgement that retail release number seven isn't on the website, and. He is correct. And we're just between a little bit of a rock and a hard place right now. As far as news goes, mm-hmm. we are um, we are working on a much larger company-wide website. Yep. And, and we're working out where things will reside and how things can be positioned clearly. And so, unfortunately, retail release number seven has just fallen between a rock and a hard place. At some point, it will get written up. I would even like there to be a downloadable PDF, but that's way beyond my technical capabilities. But yes, we understand the need to communicate with people who would like to buy it, what's in it. Telling people continually on the podcast is not quite enough. So That's true. Uh, however, however, if there are any listeners out here interested in the full details of single cast nation retail release number seven all they need to do is go to impexbev.com and go to products and then to the navigation where you see products and then scroll down to single cast nation they've updated their website to reflect awesome. what what release number seven looks like tasting notes cast details abvs i think you know recommended retail pricing the whole thing so so that awesome. is where Tim should go. That's where anyone else listening should go while we transition, hopefully soon, to our larger website. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. And then on other happy news, ROW3. What is ROW3? Rest of the world, UK. Okay. Yeah, rest of the world, UK, number three. Uh, that has been bottled. Mm-hmm. It's is awaiting labeling and and Jess our global sales manager is beginning to embark upon conversations with UK retailers and then global importers and right. distributors right. you can't just say european we're in israel we're in japan south america i'm sorry south america i'm sorry south africa <laughs> is that a bit? <laughs> no, it just I couldn't say South Africa, so I just so there you go. I'm gonna leave that in for our listeners. Now that it's easy to get product into South Africa with their on again, off again, as oh, we discussed, that's in the true. Early running. But for our South African listeners, there there may be some of our uh, MGP exclusive with Whiskey Brother uh, available, so. Once liquor sales open up a bit more, I think they did open a bit. Um, you can always check with Whiskey Brother if you want to. I said MGP, didn't I? It's not MGP. It was a Tennessee you did bourbon. Say MGP. Yeah, it was a Tennessee bourbon. That's right. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and then, just in terms of our, our bottling hall in Scotland, just working their tail off for us, mm-hmm. we have more product getting ready to go for US retail. We've got more product ready to go for U.S. online sales to the nation. 
And we've got more product getting ready to go for UK rest of the world. So yeah. there's a there's a ton of things. And, and as you and I have, have, I think, quite honestly admitted to in other episodes of, of this podcast, we're doing our best to get glass produced. We're mm-hmm. doing our best to get capsules produced. We're doing our best to get labels produced. We're doing our best to, to get freight moved around the world. It has been an incredibly difficult 2021. And yep. all of our partners have done their best. We've done our best. Jess and Elijah have done their best. We're all doing our best. And hopefully we'll have a ton of whiskey to share very soon, including retail release number seven for our friends out in the east, but it's certainly been in California for a bit, mm-hmm. certainly in Washington, certainly in Oregon. Yep. Illinois. How's Illinois looking? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's in, it's in Illinois. It started hitting shelves. Um, yeah, actually, Jean at, at Warehouse Liquors sent a picture over, and I shared that uh, with our Facebook group. Oh, wonderful. And yeah, it's it's been great. So you're going to see it starting to hit more shelves over there, which is fantastic. And it continues to spread far and wide. Minnesota, it'll be going into. And Alaska, like I mentioned, Colorado. So it's exciting. It's really exciting to see our stuff on store shelves. Excellent. Well, that that's the end of my piece of the news. You? You know what? Let's leave it there. Let's leave it there, Jason. We're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pull a a George Costanza. We know when to leave the room. We're gonna <laughs> drop the mic and we're gonna leave. <laughs> it's not a Kenny Rogers. Know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. When to you run. better count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough to count them when the dealing's done. There you go, Jason. <laughs> Let's, I hope uh, I'm on key for that. God damn it. Uh, I tell you, I know I will catch some serious shit if I'm not on key when it comes to Tim Gullick's rud. However, if I am on key then I have earned many a brownie point, Jason. Many a brownie point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I am, I am ready to call it a day and get the heck out of Dodge. Let's make like a tree and get out of here, as Biff once said on Back to the Future. Indeed. Okay, Joshua, dear listeners, it's been real. It has been real. Cheers. Cheers, one and all. Until next time. checked my preferences multiple times and one last time for good measure so that looks good did you check yourself before you wrecked yourself you know this is just a personal preference but i always wreck myself before i check myself ah
check yourself yeah. before you check yourself. I like it's that. It's just a personal preference. Yeah. It's life's little surprises. <laughs> right? That's what's that was, that's that what you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, okay, take us in. Okay. <clears throat> Let me just get a little sip of my gyokuro. Glug, glug, glug. Down the hatch. Oh, no, yep. That's definitely brewed to the max. Hello. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> oh, shit. Mm. Brewed to the max is a good expression. <laughs> that is good expression. Oof, that's brewed to the max. Yeah, really caught me in the back of my throat there. <clears throat> that takes me back to college. 